Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Oh... It could welcome here the podcast that happens. Shit. All right. Well, St. Andrew, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to pivot to you to to pull us out of this tailspin I've locked us into. <laughs> hello, hello. What's the scene everyone? Today I wanted to go on a bit of a personal meandering, I guess, on um some of the ideas and concepts that just kind of floating in my head um surrounding sustainable city planning and city living. Honestly, a lot of these ideas and stuff, um, kind of just crimp them from like all over the place. And in some cases, they're a bit less, I would say, viable than others. But I do find like the work of, for example, lowtechmagazine.com and, um, and so on to be very inspiring in terms of our capabilities 
um, what potential there is in obsolete technologies, what low-tech solutions exist for issues, and what we can do as people to just kind of make living in urban sprawl or suburban hell a little bit less hellish. Yeah, that is uh, definitely a topic close to my heart as well, as someone who lives in a city. I would like cities to be less hellish. Yeah. That seems yeah. like yeah. a goal. <laughs> and I would like suburbs to not exist. So <laughs> Eternal yeah, war on yeah. the suburbs. We have to ally with rural America in the order protracted to protracted people's war against yeah. the suburbs, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, like I mean, my, my 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 crank proposal has always been reintroducing mastodons and just mm-hmm. like just having mastodons just like walking through and destroying buildings because that that's that's what the suburbs deserves. Yeah, mastodons isn't the actual animals. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I thought you meant like the the social media platform. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. I think we need to clone leopards so that they breed as quickly as rabbits and just let them loose. Wasn't Doctor Doofenshmirtz raised by leopards? Sure, why not? I would, Robert, do you know who Dr. Doofenshmirtz is? No. Let's just move on. Yeah. No explanation. <laughs> Down. Okay. Now I feel like... <laughs> so, I know. I, I'm, I'm, I, I, think, I think we are, we are roughly the same in the same age bracket for television we watched. So I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. very... You both I'm have very, a lot, I'm very, of, lot I'm very, of Tremors movies to catch up on. I'm very familiar with The Good Doctor. Perry the platypus pilled. Yes, I am very, <laughs> very, very platypilled, as they say. Platypilled. <laughs> Let's <Nice>. continue. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, there are a lot of aspects of my evil plan to make the entire tri-state area more sustainable. <laughs> but um, I think I would want to start with something that tends to consume a lot of the energy in cities and that is like heating and cooling i mean for me living in a tropical country heating has never been a consideration yeah um i mean the coldest it gets is in like the i would say like 18 19 20 degrees celsius area wow um so and to me that is like chilly that's like layering up kind of thing because i can't handle that kind of cold um, which is kind of wild to me that I ever considered moving to Canada. Um, I don't think I'll be able to handle it. Um, <laughs> it does. It does get. It does get much colder. I mean, we when I was in Canada, we would have not not uncommonly have minus forty Celsius uh, uh, weeks. So, yeah. Yeah, I've never, I've never experienced minus degrees before. I don't know. Oh, I don't even know if that's oh, like wow. real. Oh no, <laughs> it is. Oh. oh, it's fine. It's it's not a big deal. You just put on an extra pair of socks. You're good to go. Okay, so when when it when it hits negative forty degrees uh, Fahrenheit, wait, I, what? you've experienced negative forty degrees. It's not yeah, like yeah. it's yes. not like Arctic temperatures. No, I, like yeah. neg- neg- negative negative forty negative forty Fahrenheit is uh, the, the the temperature of the surface of Mars oh, on a sunny day. Well, actually, yeah. Fahrenheit. negative yeah, negative way, forty Fahrenheit like is the same negative. as negative forty Celsius. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. They, they, actually, yeah. they actually converge yeah. at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like. What? You just, Serious? Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's, turn, it's, just, it's just pain. Like it's not even cold anymore. Like you just like your your face just hurts. Mm-hmm. It's it's great. It's, I'm it's gonna, a good time. I'm gonna call yeah. out my 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 favorite meme again and have negative forty Fahrenheit, negative forty Celsius, <laughs> Celsius clapping hands in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Classic. Classic. A- a- anyway, yes. V- v- yeah, very I mean, honestly, cold. I can't even conceive of that kind of temperature. Um, I am an island boy, so that's how <laughs> I operate. Got it. And as an island boy, um, I had to say that like heat is very, very uncomfortable. Humidic, humid heat is even more uncomfortable. Yeah. Dry heat is also extremely uncomfortable. And when you have a hot day combined with like Saharan dust in the air and no clouds in the sky it is truly truly miserable i can't imagine um what life in a city would be like if um you know these sort of temperatures continue to climb as they are climbing um as we see you know global average temperatures rising by you know a half degree or a degree or uh, two degrees Celsius, that's just ridiculous, let alone three or four degrees Celsius increase. Especially compounded with the fact that in a city, there's this thing called the urban heat island effect. So cities are 10 degrees Celsius hotter than the surrounding countryside. And the reasons for that are numerous. You know, you have like vehicles emitting heat constantly. You have air conditioners pumping heat into the air. You have concrete and asphalt covering every surface, just like absorbing and radiating the sun's rays. And you have these urban canyons between tall buildings that prevent heat from escaping from and keep it at the sort of street level. It's miserable, right? And the typical solutions, the individual solutions, the short-term solutions, they just make the situation worse. Because I mean... When you're feeling hot, I mean, I was just feeling hot just now and I turn on the AC, right? When you're feeling hot, you know, you turn on the AC or you put on a fan, but not so much a fan, but the AC continues and fuels this vicious cycle of heating the outdoors to cool the indoors, making external spaces even more uncomfortable. So you end up with air conditioning use accounting for like one fifth of global energy, electricity usage of building-related global electricity usage. And you end up with the thing that's supposed to be cooling us, heating things even more. Because, you know, as developing countries, you know, they have access to more and more air conditioning, especially, and, you know, developing countries tend to be in the hotter sides of the world. Um, You know, the use of air conditioning just continues to skyrocket. And... Um, the International Energy Agency actually estimated that it would take the amount of energy needed to cool buildings will triple by 2050, which is equivalent to the current electricity demand in the US and Germany combined. So, on top of all that, you also have an issue of like heat and heat deaths right? The deaths and injuries caused by heat. I mean, heat stroke is 
becoming more and more of an issue in cities, especially when it, you know, temperatures reach above 25 degrees Celsius. People, you know, manual laborers, people who work outside, people who just have to move around a lot, you know, experience the symptom, the symptoms of heat stroke whenever there's yeah. like the spike in temperature, right? And then even, you know, if you don't experience like a heat stroke, heat is exhausting. It is energy draining. It's utterly sapping. And it requires a lot out of your body to keep you cool and prevent you from like overheating. And surprisingly, this overheating issue is not just like, you know, a tropical issue or like a hot country issue. Like places like Moscow had like an estimated 11,000 people die due to heat wave in 2010. And so with all these heat waves and stuff, we need to like figure out what to do with all these giant concrete buildings. I mean, I know for some people like eco-brutalism is, you know, wow, so cool. To me personally, and this is just my subjective opinion, I find it ugly and disgusting and I hate it, but (laughs) you know, to each their own, right? (laughs) Ah, brutalism discourse. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what what do you all think of brutalism? Eh, I think Yugoslavian brutalism was cool. Every other kind of brutalism is just like... My opinions on brutalism boil down to thinking the game Control is fun. (laughs) I have have stayed in a Yugoslavian brutalist architecture hotel, which was one of the weirdest nights of my life because it was clearly made. It was like one of these gigantic like people's hotels that was meant to provide everyone with vacations. And so there's like 20,000 rooms and we were like the only three people there. So there was one person (laughs) at the desk and it's just – cavern of empty rooms yeah such this everything felt like a liminal space it was this it was very odd it can Um, be it can can be very very uncanny it wasn't like bad it was like reasonably well constructed it was just like deeply strange (laughs) as a place to spend the night i think that's what makes the game control so cool is that yeah it plays with those uncanny feelings on brutalism while still being like very cool like it's still Mm -hmm. It's only, Control it's is the game that um, Jacob Geller made a video about, right? Yes, he made a he he did make a video. I think about I Control. watched that recently. This is like the sort of oldest house yes. kind of thing. Yes, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to check out that game because I mean, that's what I, that's kind of like my issue with brutalism. It feels like a boss level in a video game. Yes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you have to go through each level, clear out all the minions, and make it to the top and beat the boss. It's kind of unsettling. Yes. And then like eco-brutalism is just like, oh, what if trees? Trees <laughs> or moss. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, cool. But I mean, like one of my many um, occupations, and I still maintain it seasonally, um, I was a power washer and I hate moss. And so to see moss all over buildings <laughs> just really bothers me. Like I just want to get, you know, my spray gun and just <laughs> clear it all off. Um and especially in like this climate, moss is like a very significant issue. So that makes sense. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. One of my pet peeves among many. So I mean, there are many different ways we could combat the urban heat island effects um, that don't involve eco brutalism, <laughs> and they can also help to facilitate, you know, creating more attractive spaces to live and to play. 
you know, um, obviously the solution isn't to just like bulldoze every building that has ever been built and make it more sustainable, you know, with vernacular materials and stuff. Though, of course, new buildings should be built with those principles in mind. Um, but, you know, it's unpractical to, or even sustainable, to destroy all the buildings we've already built and make and rebuild them. You know, the best thing we can do is try to mitigate and adapt with yeah. what we already have. Um, greenery. And I know I was just roasting eco-brutalism for just trap slapping trees and everything. No, but, you know, yeah, greenery is an important part in that, right? Because, you know, it, call, it causes evapotranspiration, which is like where water evaporates from plants, leaves and cools the temperature um you know it also improves people's like psychological well-being um and they just they're nice to look at um they're nice to look at they keep things cool in fact they can help cause temperatures to drop by like two to three degrees celsius in the like the surrounding area I think people slightly misinterpret it, but like this this is one of the big things you can see with with racism in the u s where like you can literally like you you can literally track racial divides in a lot of American cities yep. just by the by the temperature because like people places where not white people live just don't have trees and you know and this this has like a a just this sort of like cascading series of of environmental and uh social effects which are yeah a disaster. And yeah, environmental just, racism. Yeah, yeah. It's really stark, honestly. If you look at the heat maps of some of these cities, and you could literally see, you know, where poor black folks live. You know, you could see the places yeah. with less trees, the places next to factories with like toxic runoff and waste and that kind of thing. It's just you know right there, and it sucks. Which is why, of course, part of any sort of efforts to improve cities and make things more sustainable would involve, you know, social justice and would involve responding to and addressing the compounding effects of like environmental racism over the past several decades. So, you know, and part of the issue, again, tying things back to environmental racism is that a lot of the climate change policies that, you know, ostensibly are meant to favor like high density, urban, smart growth, you know, like sustainable blocks and that kind of thing. They are not conceived or implemented in a way that involves the people being affected by them. You know, in fact, a lot of these like sort of green um, projects raise the cost of food, energy, water, transport, housing for people in the area. You know, they create these sorts of like gentrified neighborhoods, essentially, where the original inhabitants can no longer afford to live there. So if we want to develop like a sustainable city, a resilient city, a sustainable or resilient neighborhood, it requires social justice. It requires, you know, equity and you know like the involvement of all affected through you know consensus or democracy um to just really shape the future that 
you know, they will be experiencing because they're the ones being affected by it. There are a lot of other ways as well to heat proof, as it were, a city. Um, reflective roofs and roads um, can also help to reduce the absorptive powers of um, solar radiation by concrete and asphalt. So in fact, in some cities like LA and in New York, there's this white reflective coating that um, has been implemented in some 500,000 meters squared of roof space that saves an estimated 2,282 tons of CO2 per year from cooling emissions. I mean, all it takes really is just like that sort of white reflective coat and it saves dividends in the long run. Um, NASA had done some research on this and it demonstrated the results, demonstrated that a white roof could be 23 degrees Celsius or 42 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than a typical black roof um, on a hot New York summer day. Um, and in places where like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I just kind of like glossed over it, but that is crazy. That is like, absolutely, absolutely wild. Degrees. And in cities sorry. where like, where like 10% of the land area is like asphalt. You could imagine how that sort of, um, that sort of reflective sealant can impact um, the cooling or the heating of the area. Water, of course, is another like important aspect of cooling cities. Um, in Andalus, um, which was like the Muslim kingdom in the Iberian Peninsula in the 14th century, um, they used to have these sort of like courtyards with pools and fountains that would stimulate water evaporation and cool the air. And so like cities today, could, you know, take some hints from that. You know, you have ponds and pools and fountains and misting systems and stuff that can sort of chill things out. I mean, we see that being um, implemented in China um, where you have, like, for example, um, water misters at like bus stops, which can chill the air and, you know, cool passengers as they wait. Um, and they found actually that adding water features and like cool coatings reduces the cooling requirements of an area by 29 to 43% and also lowers the overall average air temperature by 1.5 degrees Celsius. So it's like, honestly, <laughs> wild how like these little things can have such a major impact on temperature. Speaking of like, old methods of cooling, um, ancient methods of cooling. There's this Middle Eastern shading device called the Mashrabiya, um, or I think it's the Mashrabiya. And it's basically an architectural element that is usually built by um, wooden lattice work and sometimes stained glass. And it's used to like catch and cool the wind through like having these basins of water in them is let me see if I could try to describe it. It's like a window jutting out of a building. 
um, with sort of decorated by lattice work with jars and basins of water placed within them to let the wind pass through. And as the wind is passing through, it's causing evaporative cooling. Then it, it chills out the um, interior. And so these mashrabias, uh, um, they've been used since the Middle Ages by, you know, the Coptic churches of Egypt and the art deco movement in Iraq and and by, you know, the architecture um, in Baghdad as well. And so these sort of construction methods, while they tend to be developed for, you know, individual homes or individual buildings, um, they can, in fact, be implemented um, with even the aesthetics of Islamic geometry to help to cool a building and reduce its overall CO2 emissions. So I've been talking about heating and cooling and stuff for a while now. And speaking of, I should probably turn on my AC. Turn off my AC, rather. I think I heard either either it was you, Andrew, or maybe it was Robert talking about the ceramic kind of cooling idea. Ceramic cooling. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the, a big um, thing in like the um, parts of the American Southwest, like New Mexico. There's a lot of like swamp coolers that are basically working. Right, yeah. Swamp, cool, swamp coolers. It only works yeah. in certain climates, right? Like you wouldn't really. Yeah. I don't think yeah, because if it's be if it's too um, Oregon. if it's too humid, it, yeah. it's not going to work. You're just going to end yeah. up well, so getting I, even I more think, humid. I think, yeah, I, I think there's kind of a broader thing there architecturally, which is that like we have a lot of sort of like like we we've we've lost a lot of in 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 the way we do architecture, we've lost a lot of the sort of like build like we've lost a lot of sort of building techniques adapted to specific locations yeah vernacular sort of architecture like, yeah yeah and like that's something that has to be reversed like immediately because <laughs> yeah like yeah. Our, our our current model of, of building houses out of oil is uh going to get us all killed oh so, oh, <laughs> oh really what's yeah what's the problem yeah. there what's wrong oh. what's wrong with that i mean on top of that right it's not just vernacular architecture but vernacular clothing I mean, it's, I mean, as, again, someone living in a tropical country, I see it for myself, like, working people going to work wearing, like, full long sleeve dress shirts and long, long dress pants and, you know, like, formal shoes and it's honestly absurd. <laughs> you know, sometimes, like, they have the whole tie, like, you know, pulled up and everything. It's not... It's entirely based on like European standards of professionalism and um, it needs to be abolished. <laughs> Abolish yeah. dress codes, all right? Abolish like this whole idea that, you know, we have to dress this particular way um, despite, you know, the temperature because it's more professional or whatever. Fuck professionalism, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, we we at we at podcasting are in the vanguard of this, but uh, we need you all's <laughs> help to destroy professionalism once and for all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Show up to work in your bathing suit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like vernacular buildings as well. You know, obviously, you had in in Africa, in different parts of Africa, you'd have different structures that were. Particularly tailored, so, you know, if you were in a in a tropical rainforest environment, you would have a building that's tailored to, you know, 
keeping mosquitoes out and maintaining a certain temperature within and maintaining comfort as well within. Or, you know, in colder regions, you would have um, certain construction that would keep heat within the building and prevent um, excessive discomfort, you know. Um, And there were also, of course, like when it comes to like colder areas, you were also expected to sort of keep yourself warm as well as, you know, keep your building warm. In fact, it was more so keeping yourself personally warm. So keeping yourself layered up even when you're indoors. And of course, that's kind of lost today. People are expected to just, you know, turn on the heater and vibe for the months of winter. But it isn't sustainable. A lot of things we enjoy today aren't sustainable. And it keeps coming back to that. But yeah. Speaking of things that we enjoy that are not at all sustainable, how about cars? Yes. Can we get rid of cars? Yes. Can we please get rid of cars? I mean, cars are very convenient in terms of like, if you want to get somewhere very specific, um, you know, if there's a place you want to go, I'm the one you need to know. I'm a car. I'm a car. I'm a car. You know, kind of thing. Thank, but, thank you. Yes. <laughs> my little musical interlude there. Thank you for appreciating it. I appreciate um, it. <laughs> but ultimately, like, they honestly aren't sustainable they honestly aren't something that we can maintain in the near or even far well potentially in the in the near but it's much the far future i mean people already know the problems with gas cars already know why gas cars are bad but you know things just things are just sort of pivoted towards electric cars and whoo electric cars let's get a bunch of electric cars whoo but electric cars aren't better i mean the materials they require the energy they require is quite frankly not sustainable in the long run and it just lengthens the amount of time that we spend dependent on cars for short and long distance travel and especially how in the states we've like built our cities around the idea of a car which has expanded the urban terrain unnecessarily and if you look at like all the space taken up by like highways and overpasses and how much have just like urban space is taken up but just been built around the idea of the car it really kind of makes the whole idea of a city so much less useful it's it's really it's really yeah. frustrating and, and i think it's also working out cars are so unbelievably dangerous yes that is yeah true. yeah we're very much used to like having these like death machines driving around at all yeah. times and that that makes for like a, a very um cool like series of metal band song names or whatever but the death statistics aren't funny when it comes to cars no and like the average trans- transportation time having cars has not actually decreased like the amount of time it takes to get from place to place based on like where you live in your city has not actually decreased because now everything is just spread further apart so 100 years ago it would take you know like a 15 minute trek to get to like you know, the market or something, it can take oftentimes longer, especially if you're driving in like rush hour traffic to get just 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 like a couple of miles, where even in some cases, a decent jog could get you there faster. Um, yeah. Just because of how we've just designed cities all around these rolling metal death cages. Um, yeah, it's not it's, it's not great. It's one of the reasons I don't currently have a car. Yeah. 
and that's kind of that's something that's shocking to a lot of people when I tell them that really I have no intention of ever buying a car, of ever owning a car. It's not something that I want. And I mean, I live relatively close to like some of the major transport um, arteries of the country. And, you know, Trinidad has like this unique-ish um, transportation system, public transportation system. So we have these privately owned maxi taxis that um, they're like vans um, with seats in the back. Um, and, you know, you could, you just kind of jump in um, depending on where they're going, which route they're taking. Um, and they're, they're convenient enough for me and for my purposes. So I just, you know, I go where I need to go um, with them. But they're also gas-guzzling, inefficient machines. I mean, they're better than, you know, all those people driving cars. I mean, as an island, you know, like, I don't know why we're so obsessed with having more and more cars on the road. Um, but at the end of the day, they still aren't the best in terms of sustainability and in terms of um, viable, reliable, sustainable transport. Um, we also have like personal taxis as well, but they have the same problems as regular taxis. And what's frustrating is that we used to have um, a train line um, that went along the entire east-west corridor of the country. And that's where most of the people in Trinidad live, along the east-west corridor. Um, but that was destroyed in the 1960s, I think, to make way for highways and a priority bus route. So instead of having a nice, convenient, cute little train that we could take to go from place to place, we have to rely on buses and maxis and taxis and cars. Yeah, that is, uh, quite... That's not cool. <laughs> that is quite... It's not good. Quite, quite grim. Because we need to reconfigure. Seriously, I would love for them to bring back trains. To be able to take a train, to not have to rely on, I mean, government bureaucracy makes all things unreliable, but I think a train would have been slightly more reliable than a bus. Very much on the pro train, on the, on the pro train train. I've, I've had <laughs> fewer, few, fewer, fewer moments more happy than riding the Portland Max Line and Streetcar in a uh, no-face costume. It's very, <laughs> it's, it's very fun. I think also, like, another thing about, about cars, right? This is, just, this is just, just on a very pure political level, like, cars are the thing that allow suburbs to exist, and the existence of suburbs has produced just generation upon generation of, like, frothing reactionaries who are the source of, like, enormous percentages of the world's problems and so if you get rid of those places you produce less of them yeah which is just a, a political benefit for anyone who wants to not die <laughs> exactly exactly i mean we don't think about it because there are already so many things to think about but if you actually sat down and pondered the death toll of like cause um, we really and really brought it to the forefront and really made it less of a necessity. I think more and more people would be open to the idea of rejecting cars, to keeping them as at most a uh, benign novelty um, that maybe 
one or two exits to the entire community um, for use if needs be. Um, but otherwise, I, I don't see how each and every person in the world owning their own car is at all the best way to go. Also, cars are kind of ugly to me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we really didn't design them to look cool. It's just, it's... I mean, there's some cars that look kind of cool, like some of the more classic ones, but... And that's part of the issue, right? They're getting uglier to me, and they're also getting larger. You know, like and SUVs and stuff people. are like, yeah. they're we raising just, their grills more and more. So like you're basically a pedestrian killing machine. We've effectively undone most of the benefits of making cars safer for passengers by making them much more dangerous for um, pedestrians, which is entirely a marketing choice. Like if, if you, like the fucking trucks they were making 25 years ago are just as useful. Um, and in a lot of cases, more useful for like practical farm work for hauling and whatnot than the trucks they're making today. They they haven't meaningfully gotten better. They've just gotten a lot larger for no real reason other than it makes people feel like big men. Well, That's and then cool. you get these fun, you get these fun, you can, you can look at their marketing people like explicitly talking about how like, yeah, like they like basically explicitly playing into the, the, the fantasy of running over protesters. And it's, yep. it's great. It's yeah. So get rid of cars and you won't have to deal with that. But Chris, it's, how is that sustainable or viable? Hmm. Good question. <laughs> Introducing super blocks. Ooh. Ah. Yes. Super, <laughs> super blocks are basically um, neighborhoods of nine blocks. So I don't think they have to be. I think the philosophy and ideas behind super blocks could be implemented to suit different um, cities with different histories and different layouts. Especially basically with like the, localized, like especially, especially with like localized um, streetcars within each city block, within each super block like system. Exactly. So just to clarify the idea uh, super blocks are basically um you know neighborhoods of nine blocks where traffic is restricted to the roads on the outside of the block which means that the interior of the super blocks are entirely walkable that combined with the idea of a super block being um mixed use means that people are mostly able to access their basic necessities within their city block are able to like spend more time, have more open space, to spend more time to meet with people, to talk, to do, do activities, to, you know, have some relief from noise pollution and air pollution from vehicles and to really, like, connect people with the space they're living in and make the space they're living in more livable. I mean, I don't live smack dab in the middle of, like, urban, urban town, but... I could imagine for people living in like New York or whatever, you, know, you can't exactly step out of your apartment and play in the road on a typical day. If you have kids or whatever, you know, they can't exactly just go run outside. Um, you will die. <laughs> exactly. Will die so fast. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, people complain about like, oh, kids these days don't go outside as much. But I mean, look at outside. Yeah. <laughs> you know, outside is look murder. at what. 
look at what has been created um, and reflect on that. I mean, part of the issue is um, the way social media algorithms are designed to suck people into like cycles of addiction, but that's a whole nother topic, right? Um, I think a lot of people, more people would be willing to would be able to pull themselves out of that sort of um, harmful algorithmic hell if there was an outside to pull themselves out too, you know? But honestly, cities especially are notorious for like not having places you can be where you don't have to spend money. And that sucks. So I think um, super blocks being places where, you know, libraries and um, places where people can eat. Makerspaces, community eat, kitchens. Maker spaces. I mean, it, it does seem to be missing or ignoring the what we're going to lose with super blocks, which is how how am I going to roll down the street, smoke an Indo, sipping on gin and juice if I'm not allowed to drive within my block? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we can, where, where I think we can reach that. <laughs> I think I think you could just get a bike. <laughs> Booze cruising have, on the bicycle. Have you tried smoking Indo, sipping on gin and juice while riding a bicycle? It's it's impossible. Get a cup holder. It, it, anything is possible. This is Snoop Dogg erasure. <laughs> no, but the the idea of having yeah, like community gardens, community like kitchens, like uh, maker spaces, libraries, all these within like this super block framework, you know, like green spaces. It does make actual urban city living seem attractive and not like you're just living in nested concrete boxes. Yeah, I mean, people like living by... in cities because that's where everything's happening, right? Yeah. But yeah, you you want to be able to take part in the things that are happening, but the place is unlivable. Yeah, you, know? you have the table I will continue to complain about until the end of time, which is the table in Chicago Chinatown that threatens to arrest you for sitting at it. Like, it's... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like the hostility of, and I mean, this goes back to like racism because of course everyone does, everything does, but you know, a lot of these loitering laws and stuff were literally designed to target black people and to target, you know, poor people, um, like vagrancy laws and that sort of thing. It's just hostile people's existence. And that gets into like hostile architecture and that sort of thing. But we, I think with these super blocks, you know, we open up our spaces to make them welcoming to human existence. Spaces that are not built around cars, built around commutes, built around work. And this obviously is a transformation that requires more than just, you know, vote for so-and-so and make the city green kind of thing. You, know, you, need, you need something more substantial than that. You know, within these super blocks as well, you're, you're able to take stock of how your block or whatever, you have a, a better mental sense of um, community and you're able to take a better sense of even things like how your block can communally sustain themselves and, you know, reduce waste and all these different things. This in conjunction with struggle against capitalism in the state. But, you know, that is implied. This is, you know, <laughs> this is the show. This is, it could happen here. I don't know if you expect in like electoralism, but it's not really what we do around here. I mean, the benefits to these sort of like 
super blocks, you know, these 15-minute zones so people can walk within 15 minutes to get the essentials. The benefits are innumerable, you know, better air quality, less noise, healthy lifestyle, mental health boost. But the issue is without a combination of, you know, these projects and these activities with like anti-capitalism and anti-statism, it's, it's, tends to lend itself towards gentrification. And we've seen that in Spain, which is where um, some of these superblocks have been implemented. Um, they've created like these locations that are obviously more desirable because who doesn't want to live in a superblock where, you know, you actually have a sense of community because we're all desperate for that. Um, and at least an increase in property demand, higher prices, higher rent. It basically creates these pockets of unaffordable neighborhoods. Yeah. Displacing local residents. So you have to get into the fight against gentrification in order to make this, you know, idea um, viable. The last thing that I want to get into really is, as Carl mentioned, um, community gardens. I want to talk about urban farming because that is crucial. I mean, part of what um, makes cities cities in a lot of cases is the fact that they import all their food, right? They have the urban-rural divide that, you know, delineates the two areas. Um, but considering the transportation costs, the energy costs, all those things that compound um, to sustain a city, a city's food needs, we have to look to ways that we can sustain cities and sustain neighborhoods within cities um, within themselves. Before I continue, I just want to point out that the future of urban farming is not in vertical farms. Um, they look very cool, you know, like those tall kind of like pillars of like lettuce or whatever growing yeah. out of thing. But the land that they save is usually cancelled out by the land they need to produce the energy to power them. Hmm. Like they're very energy intensive um, spaces. So until that issue is resolved, and I don't know if it will be considering, you know, how the energy requirements are just sort of built into the vertical, the concentration of energy requirements built into the, into the vertical farming design. Um, we have to look to more practical methods. Land ownership tends to be a major hurdle um, when it comes to organizing um, community gardens and maintaining community gardens. Um, I mean, like folks like Black Futures Farm, Oakland Avenue Urban Farm and the Victory Garden Initiative, they've been working to like provide fresh produce to those in need, especially in urban food deserts. But in a lot of these projects, they're going good for some years and then the city suddenly spins around and it's like, oh, we need this land for development. So they just snatch it up and, you know, those years of efforts just basically go down the drain. Um, community land trusts have been put forward as a potential um, solution to that issue. But like a lot of these things, I mean, it's a, good band-aid I would say but it's not necessarily marking the end of capitalism <laughs> another issue that 
there is with the whole urban farming thing is that um, the culture that develops around them while they, you know, provide education and community and connection for people within them. And that is extremely valuable. I think a lot, some organizers fall into this habit of treating, uh, of creating this sort of like shared delusion around community gardens, you know, claiming to be sort of feeding the people, quote unquote. And what really brought this to my attention was um, Inhabit Territories newsletter. They had an article on it last year, I think, on, you know, urban community gardens. And it was written by Gabriel Isin, the co-founder of Atlanta, which I find to be a very, very creative um, name basically asked the question, are we really feeding ourselves? I mean, these local food initiatives, they do produce food that people eat, but it can be a bit harmful to be overly optimistic about our food autonomy at this stage, especially considering how reliant we still are on big agriculture. You know, like, yes, we are producing, you know, organic, nutritionally dense crops and stuff. And that's great. That's helping people. But, you know, oftentimes it usually just means that, you know, the people might be getting, participants might be getting like a salad or, you know, a couple of tomatoes. It's not necessarily that they are cutting down their grocery bill in a sustainable long-term way. Because, I mean, if you've tried gardening, you know that, like, when you're working with a limited space, you know, you, you grow your first set of tomatoes. The tomatoes are cool, but they don't last forever, you know? Yeah. And you have to wait until the next harvest to get more tomatoes or whatever the case may be. Same for like lettuce or whatever. It's kind of rough, you know? It doesn't, it helps for like a meal or maybe two, depending on like your living situation, but it doesn't meaningfully cut into our reliance on groceries and, you know, food imports. Yeah, it definitely takes a bit to get to that point. And you have to do it with a combination of like food preservation and like canning um, and like, you know, like jarring and a whole bunch of other stuff to actually make that a worthwhile endeavor as opposed to just making like, great, I spent three months making these tomatoes. Now they're ready for one meal and then they're all gone. <laughs> Maybe like one salsa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you do have to really kind of figure out how to grow enough to keep enough ready to be harvested for jarring and canning for future use um, and make sure like you're, you know, harvesting them when they are ready so that you can, you know, you don't lose stuff and that you have like, you know, an ongoing ongoing process of like preserving the food that you do grow for later um, as yeah. well. So you can definitely yeah. take a lot, a, a lot more like mental effort and planning than just, you know, planting it and then, you know, mm -hmm. using it and cooking it when it's, when it's all ready. Yeah. I mean, a lot of energy and stuff is put into growing things like greens and roots and fruiting vegetables and they're healthy, you know, they have the vitamins and the micronutrients, but you know, people still need meat, dairy, eggs, you know, protein. Yeah. Heavy, high calorie dense stuff, you know, like potatoes and, other starches that can really hold people over, wheats and that kind of thing. And that just isn't being grown right now. You know, wheat and rice and soy and nuts and corn and sugar, these staples and stuff don't tend to be produced by 
these community gardens and by these, you know, garden plots. Yeah, so not many, think, not many, not many uh, legume patches at your local community garden. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like I'm, I'm in the process of growing um, some pigeon peas right now, and um, they are taking a very long while. And <laughs> what I realize is that um, I mean, I just planted them, so I'm being a bit impatient. <laughs> but what I realize is that I. When they do grow out, and I've seen, you know, some mature pigeon pea trees and stuff, so I know how big they tend to grow. By the time harvest rolls around, you know, you get all those different pods and you, you know, you put in the work, you pull, you, you pick all the pods and you um, pry open the pods and, you know, you put in some more alliteration into the sentence and, you know, you, you get those peas out. Once those peas are out to the pod and you put them in a pot, they are not potent enough to hold you over for more than one meal you know like <laughs> you pick like a yeah. tree's worth of peas in a pod and you know that's like sometimes like half of a meal but really honestly respect to the people who are producing all of our food right now because I can't imagine having to be shelling peas all the time it's kind of ridiculous I mean, it can be fun, but I can't imagine doing it all day. I mean, work is work, right? It's going to, yeah. Yeah, work is hell. We know this. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, I mean, community gardens, they're good. You know, they have, you know, education, they build community, they provide outdoor activity and stuff. But, you know, I think what community gardens, urban gardens and stuff need to do is find ways to... um and you know, this, this isn't to disparage the work that's being done. You know, like massive support. I'm doing that myself kind of thing. But we got to like, as the article argues, we can't get caught up in the fluffing up of the reality for marketing purposes. You know, we need to look for ways that can actually um, feed ourselves. That means getting into caloric foods. That means, um, you know, like, like dried beans, potatoes, fruit trees, that kind of thing. Grains, nuts, all that jazz. And also connecting with farms outside of the city, you know, local farms outside of the immediate urban landscape. Seeing what cooperatives can be developed that can work, aid each other mutually to build a more potent capacity for food autonomy so i mean get in touch with the soil you know get the sun in your face but also think about what more we can do to sort of take this to the next level and yeah that is um that is what i believe could in fact happen here this has happened here good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to have a positive one of these. Yeah. We should do that more often. If, if, only, if, if only we had the power. If only to we had the power. <laughs> well, come back tomorrow when we'll be talking about another bad thing and then abandoning you to deal with your thoughts about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. What a... 
I we we try. We try. We do we do try. This is us trying. Well, this is us having St. Andrew try. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you uh very much. This is a topic I've wanted to discuss for a long time in terms of yeah, because we get a lot of people talking about like, yeah, how you know, in whatever like post-collapse fantasy that you can imagine where you're able to kind of reconfigure society. How would you plan urban living? And you're like, well, yeah, there's there's a lot of actually really cool ideas for mm -hmm. like keeping people close together can be a very ecological idea if you do it certain ways. It's just a lot of the ways we've defaulted to over the past, like really 300 years has uh, made it not that <laughs> with the invention of the car really, really screwing us over. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, thank you so much for uh, talking about urban living and super super blocks and all this kind of stuff. Um, where can uh, where can people find more of your uh, work and writing on the interwebs? You can find me on YouTube at Saint Andrewism, and you can find me on Twitter, which hopefully when you hear this, I am still not on at underscore Saint Andrew. Fantastic. Um, yeah, you, uh, St. Andrew just put together a really great episode about um, uh, anti-work stuff and the way that uh, debacle has, has, has happened and uh, yeah. what we can learn from it and that kind of thing. Um, and why you should still actually care about anti-work. Um, and yeah, so would definitely recommend the anti-work video for recent, recent, recent stuff. Let's see, um, if you want to uh, feed your brain into the uh, addiction-driven social media algorithm, you can follow us on uh, Twitter and Instagram at HappenHerePod and CoolZone Media. And uh, yeah, let's uh, go, think about, go think about makerspaces and community gardens. That seems like yeah. a, good, a good way to dedicate your thought mm -hmm. time. And roll down the street, smoking Indo, sipping that gin and juice while you still can. Okay. On a bike, on a bike, Before on a bike, or else, I'm, or else I am personally bestowing my moral judgment upon you. Okay. All before right. before, before the fascist anarchists take away your F-150s, yeah. Look, if, if, if we can democratize military-grade weaponry the way the Ukrainians have, we can, we, can, we can form neighborhoods that cannot be forced to live in the traffic, uh, the, 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 the auto-industrial complex. What, we can what also a really, really reduce frivolous air travel. <laughs> what a fantasy. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll end up in a Mad Max world. And I mean, who wants that, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, every once in a while. Of it. Aspects have, of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you later, everybody. Bye. Peace. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Podcast. Thank you. That is, it is, it's true. It's true, actually. This yeah. is, it could happen here. A podcast. Yeah. Breaking that is introduced news. by, You're by listening Sophie. To a podcast. Oh, me. oh, that's broadly <laughs> accurate. Um, that is more or less the truth. We have, um, we have dragged Robert out of bed at, before the crack of dawn at 11.42 a.m. No. Um, and we're going to talk about actually something very fun. I'm, I'm, I've, been, I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time because this is one of, actually one of my favorite things. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to tell a bit of a, a bit of a little uh, story regarding one of my actual all time favorite events and topics. So back in like 2013, there was this uh, a cheesy little online university science show made by the Rochester Institute of Technology called Can You Imagine? Um, the the idea was to highlight some of the cool and weird things at the university, um, in part to promote the Imagine RIT Festival, which was like the school's annual like innovation and creativity festival thing that they put on. So yeah, today I want to talk specifically about episode three of the web series, um, because the contents of which overlap with some of my like artistic interests um, and like just my love of illusions and paradox. And it'll kind of tie into some topics we, other, we always discuss on the show. So yeah, ep- episode three, one of prob- probably the, the most interesting episode. Um, episode three opens with the hosts, Kevin and Steph, as they like stand awkwardly in a gloriously dated u- like university film set. Uh, like it's, it, it, it's, it's only 20, it's only 2013, but it was like, obviously like, made in the 90s like 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 the sets like it, it's all it's, it's all very dated what um, what specifically are you referring to oh like they're, they're like they're just like weird like like weird like 
like dated science stuff on the walls. The, all the hosts are wearing like dorky orange t-shirts, old, like, o- really, like over over top of their yeah. regular clothes. Really and they have, like, old computers? Just, Do they have like the yeah yeah? It, it, it's, it's all it's all the kind it's all that kind of stuff. I love so it. like d- dorky orange t-shirts with the letters RIT for Rochester Institute of Technology. Um, of course, because everything in this online video series is perfect. Um, Kevin is is wearing his shirt over top of like a button down. It's 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 great. Um, the first 50 seconds of the video are taken up with like plugging the upcoming uh, uh, RIT Imagine Festival with a with a co-host uh, Steph beautifully uh, stumbling over uh, her lines when she says the event's catchphrase. It's where the left brain and the right brain collide, and it's great. It's 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 perfect. So after all the plugs and the vamping. The hosts get down to the fun engineering feat that they'll be showing us today, which is a neat little architectural experiment, a part of the RIT campus called the Asherian Stairwell. Um, of course, named after the impossible staircases depicted in Dutch artist uh, M.C. Escher's artwork. So the video cuts to from the little like soundstage they're filming in to this boring, white, seemingly typical stairwell. Our host, Kevin, uh, ascending a flight of the gray concrete stairs, um, explains that what located in building seven of the campus, the stairwell was designed by Filipino architect Rafael Nelson Avogando and was one of the first structures put up when RIT moved their campus from downtown Rochester to the more suburban Henrietta. Um, when, when he's taking when he's reaching the top of the stairs, he turns the corner and then suddenly seems to appear at the bottom of the lower flight of stairs leading up to the landing that he just left from, all while continuing to talk about the architect behind this like kind of weird, impossible feat. Um, so as Kevin walks back up to camera, he says that the stairwell uh, was built in uh, 1968 and has been wowing RI2 st- students ever since. Um, <laughs> It's it is very cool. It's like it's like you're like okay, like you you get you, you get the little like like a you get the little like architectural trick that they're doing, um, but it's it is it is still pretty fun to see. Um, before episode three of Can You Imagine aired, you could you could already find a few articles on the school's uh, 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 website about the Asherian stairwell, along with some like forum posts debating how the architecture in the stairwell works to like achieve the effect. Um, also floating around on YouTube was like a, a random segment of what looked like a like a, a PBS style late 90s documentary about the physics and architecture of the school and specifically the stairwell uh, that interviewed some like professors um, and some like architects and like of the and some physicists kind of discussing what like how to like bring paradox into the physical world. Yeah, but 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 around the time the Can You Imagine episode aired, the now like infamous RIT stairwell was mostly unknown. So it was like even despite it being very interesting, no one really knew about it until this episode of this little web series aired. Um, the little web episode dedicates around half its time to interviewing students uh, and just like random people at the university about if they even know about the stairwell's existence, um, and if they do, what like experiences they have with like messing around with like the looping architecture uh, because yeah, you can, you, you know, you can play a lot of games with this type of, with this type of design. Uh, so the rest of the short video like tries to demonstrate the disorienting uh, ascent down and descent back up uh, via the camera in various ways. Like, you know, like human chains all holding hands around the weird, like Mubius <laughs> loop type staircase and like passing objects back and forth in a circle while inside and around the enclosed stairwell. 
Um, there's one where Kevin walks around with like a cup to show that the stairs aren't like clearly like heavily slanted. Like the water stays pretty pretty level as he walks all the way through, and we like we, we follow with him the entire time. Um, so yeah, like the, the overall like nerdy and lo-fi style of the university video matched with like the insane feat of architectural illusion is a really fun mix. Like it's like it's like it's it's a, it is very like surreal but not totally on purpose because it's just all of these like <laughs> regular college students yeah showing this like really cool architecture by this really good architect and you're like oh yeah they're just like they're so chill about it um it is it is it is pretty fun it's pretty fun um after the third episode of the imagine rit video was posted uh, finally, the mind-boggling looping staircase of Building 7 in the, of, of RIT started to gain a lot of uh, confused appreciation, um, <laughs> and the dorky university science show went viral. Uh, people started traveling from out of state, even other countries, to see the Asherian stairwell themselves um, <laughs> and, and, and film videos on social media as, as they walk through it. There, there's this one video of like people traveling from like, a different country and they're like harassing like the school staff to try to like tell them where it is. And they're like, oh, my God, you're still doing this. Because it was like because like this film, was, this video is like like years old, but it's, it still happens. People still travel there to to specifically see it. Um, there is like tense online discussion and debate on how the Filipino architect uh, Rafael Avogando was able to achieve the effect and what kind of other bizarre architectural experiments he may have worked on. Uh, because you can find his Facebook page and you can find some stuff about him, but he is not really, because like this, this, this stairwell was built in the late 60s, but you have, you, so he's, if, even though he has an online presence, he's like, he's like, he's not like active. So hmm. it's unclear like what else he's actually been doing. Um, but I would, I would, I would love to learn more about this architect and what else he's done because this, it's, it is, it is really rad to have these like very like small, condensed, but like high effort type, like type builds, and like the the existence of the whole thing poses some really interesting questions around how extremely clever paradoxical design can push the boundary of how we make assumptions about spatial physics um, and how we visually and physically demonstrate things that we usually can only depict in two dimensions right like you, you can you can easily depict the, the Asherian stairwell in two dimensions but when you're scaling that up to three dimensions it's obviously more work like like that that is that is part of the paradox um Plus, you know, it also demonstrates the importance of art and how ideas once thought impossible or merely optical illusions can actually, with enough dedicated effort, break into our real reality. Uh, if a brilliant architect can manage to build this physically and like logically impossible structure, what other types of things can we actually view as possible? Um, the, the video now has like over a million views on its original upload um, and videos about the RIT stairwell have raked up as many as like 25 million views. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. You, you know what else demonstrates the looping nature of time? Having to listen to all these ads that we do. Yep. Pew pew. pew. We, we, are, we are back. I've, I've rounded the corner and we are back where we came from um, because of the fun paradox of architecture. Um, <laughs> The, the the one the, the one other thing I should uh, mention before we uh, continue on this episode uh, is that the entire thing is fake. It's false. No way. Not this time. We created it. Not this time. No. Not this time. It's totally made up. 
Because <laughs> of course, it's a, sta- it's a staircase yeah. that breaks the basic rules of movement and physics. Kevin walks yep. up the stairs and teleports to the lower stairwell beneath him. There's, there's no, that's, not, that's, not, that's not an architectural illusion. It's called good video editing and Adobe After Effects. It's not like, <laughs> like no, you're, you're really going to believe a, a video on the internet and some well-placed falsified internet posts over the very basic rules that govern our universe? <laughs> but like, oh boy, did it fool millions of people um and if i played my cards right i hope most of our listeners until the last few seconds um yeah it is uh so the whole the whole thing was a was a a a student like film and art project around uh, around building a modern myth um the it's because it sure it sure is interesting how good storytelling can overrule obvious logical processes uh, the, the tale of the Asherian stairwell is one of my favorite case studies in how disinformation spreads and is believed while all in defiance of the basic rules of reality. Because it's not a matter of what facts are true, it's about what facts are compelling. And the idea of a logically impossible staircase being <laughs> built by a brilliant Filipino architect is more interesting than it being someone's weird disinformation art project. Um, Fair. So, yeah, like I, I want to say, like, how, what, what were you guys thinking as I was explaining the Asherian stairwell? Like, what, where'd you see this going? Okay, so I had in the back of my head, uh, I, I, okay, we, we, should, we should mention this. Uh, Garrison has been hyping up this episode for like, I don't even, a, a pretty significant a amount of time has a told while. us nothing. So, we just show up. <laughs> yeah, that, no. And there's a staircase, and I'm like, what, what? <laughs> And I was like, and, you know, and my 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 brain my brain started going because you said 1968, and I was like, my like my counterinsurgency uh-huh. brain flicked on, <laughs> and I was like, wait a second, hold on, is this like some kind of like uh, weird like we've redesigned the college campuses so they stop uh, people stop taking the dean hostage, <laughs> a thing that used to happen constantly and would all. And, my favorite part about this would happen constantly, and you'd get New York Times articles calling it nonviolent. Great. <laughs> yeah. So. But yeah, it was a. That was a. I was. Yeah, so I spent more mental energy than I probably should have trying to figure out how it would work. And no. I was like, no. I don't know. Maybe they just made it like. Maybe they just made it. Occam's razor. It's obviously. Fake. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was in the like, I was in the like. Okay, so they they built the staircase. They built another. St- I, I, the viewers cannot see no, my finger thing. Regu- then it was it's like, a regular, it's a regular yeah, well, staircase. It doesn't tell. And it's nothing. Yeah, it was like you, it was like. But, but you you can find videos of people traveling to the school to see if it's real, and they try it, and they're so disappointed. They're like, oh yeah, no, it's it's nope, it's just stairs. It doesn't. Which, it which, doesn't. Yeah, it's disappointing in a lot of ways because it's it's not even like a thing where like there's like another back staircase that you walk down and then you go no, back up it again. No, it's, it's just it's just nothing. It's just stairs. <laughs> like, not, I was hoping there was like some actual clever thing. As no, no, it's, it's just, not. It's, it's not real. Uh, it's 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 it it's, was, it's just the the, the bridge that, we should hit in Afghanistan. It was that meme where all the math doesn't add up and the person like, know, yeah. what is happening. <laughs> I was like, all right, Garrison, you got us here. You made Robert get up before noon. What is happening? Well, the, the reason, the, the real reason I got up before, I, I got Robert up before noon is because I actually um, have uh, scheduled an interview with the creator of the Asherian Stairwell, the actual one, via like the online art project and uh, building a modern myth idea, um, which we are now going to segue into. So, 
yeah, here, fo what, what follows is uh, us talking with the creator of the Asherian Stairwell uh, project. Hello, uh, we are we are back from our probably very, very brief break. Um, and with me, uh, along with Robert and, and uh, Chris and uh, Sophie, is uh, uh, Michael, the uh, creator of the Asherian Stairwell project and the uh, Building the Modern Myth uh, project. Hello, greetings. Hi. Greetings. Thank you so much for uh, joining us to talk about yeah. uh, what one of my one of my favorite things, actually, <laughs> which right. is which is your little two S two project. Um, yeah, I've, I've I've been a fan of this for a long time and found it to be really compelling and interesting. Um, and I so I, I just walked through Robert and and Chris and Sophie what what it what it was, but from the perspective of it being true uh, for like for like a good 15 minutes i was i was i was i was going was going through talking about it as if it were completely real um, i'm curious know, like... to hear how you did that <laughs> not... it was it was slightly yeah. baffling because again right. we, we were told nothing and then what we got is garrison is talking about a youtube video about an architecture thing and i was like what right right <laughs> what is yeah, happening yeah. here <laughs> Yeah, and then and then then you know, talking about hey oh yeah and I guess one more thing is that it's actually fake um, <laughs> and it's part of this whole this whole thing so yeah I would I would love to talk to you about both like how how you like logistically like made the project but also like the underlying your underlying th thoughts that like inspired you to do it in the first place and then like retrospected now almost like ten years later. Like right. how do you view the project as like happening, you know, right before like the peak of online disinformation um, yeah. around like 2016, right? So, but right. For, first of all, I, I I think we should we should probably start start at the beginning. Like, what what was your inspirations for this type of like um online like very because it, it it seems it seems built to go viral in a lot of ways. Um, yes, exactly. So this was around 2011, I guess, was when I first got the idea. It was for my master's thesis, my MFA for film at Rochester at RIT. And um, the idea actually began from this like deep anxiety about how to discern fact from fiction. Um, at the time, like I came into film school, like really into like realism in films like Romanian New Wave. Mikhail Hanukkah, Dardan Brothers, like these are filmmakers who are like, they're sort of like the modern day version of Italian neorealism. Neo and yeah. they're trying to like depict like these um, reality as it is. So I wanted to like learn how to make those types of films. Um, so over like with each year, that's what I tried to get better at. And the more I tried to do that, um, well, like a number of things were happening around that time, right? In class, they showed us these mockumentaries called No Lies, which was made in 1973 by this guy called Mitchell Block. It actually won a student Oscar at the time. And uh, Delusions in Modern Primitivism, 2001, by this guy named Daniel Laughlin. Um, and these, like, I was, like, floored because I thought they were real, like, real documentaries. And, um, and... It bothered me, like our teachers told us afterwards that these were actually scripted works of fiction with like really, really good actors. And it like I went into kind of like existential crisis mode afterwards, like 
how do I even discern what's true from what's not if I got fooled by these things? Especially like that's like my concentration. That's what yeah. I've been studying for years. And even I was not even able to tell that they were fake, right? Yeah. So there was that going on. And then there was like smartphones were becoming a thing. Like I just looked it up. Smartphones didn't start out sell- outselling flip phones till 2013. So around okay. this time, like it was becoming a thing where everyone would have the internet in their pocket. So I guess there was that anxiety going on. Yeah, absolutely. trying to think about um, um, how we're starting to function and how we're, how, I remember when I proposed my thesis to the thesis committee, I, I um, one of the things that I was telling them was, um, I have this worry about how reliant we are on the internet to determine what's true and what's not. And this is like, like my professors found my concerns like really abstract and theoretical. Like, why do you even <laughs> care? Because this oh, was 2011, oh right? Like, why yeah, do you even yeah. care about fact and fiction? It wasn't like fake news. That wasn't even a it term. Wasn't a thing. Yeah, no. it wasn't. It didn't become part of the everyday lexicon, like you said, until 2016. When Trump started throwing that term around, yeah, and and suddenly we hear about it every day. Um, so there was that going on. Trayvon Martin was a thing, and it, for the first time, like nationally, you could see like dis- disinformation, like on, you know, just like exaggerated versions of different you know, different accounts from like polarizing sides. Yeah. So all that was going on, and so I I I wanted to. It was it was like. This film project was about um, trying to take something that was. Uh, are you familiar with the, with the difference between like a priori knowledge and a posteriori knowledge? Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. So so like you know for for anyone who might be listening that doesn't really know the exact difference, a priori knowledge is the type of knowledge that you can have without needing to make observations or conduct experiments or look at surveys or do any research of any any kind. is a sort of knowledge you can know just by reasoning it out. But just yeah. by sitting in a room by yourself in the dark, you could figure things out. This is yeah. the sort this is a priori knowledge. Um so for an example of that is like knowing that all bachelors are unmarried. Yeah. Right. Or yeah. all triangles have three sides. That's a priori knowledge. An example of a posteriori knowledge um, is something that you find out through observation or uni- using one or more of your five senses, right? Like Joe Biden is the president of the United States. Um, the mass of Mars is 6.4171 times 10 to the 23rd kilograms. You actually have to go out into the world and conduct surveys or do research. So that's a posteriori knowledge. So the idea was to take something that was a priori false, something that could that could um, be disproven by reason alone. Like you yes. wouldn't have, you wouldn't need to do any research in order to to know that it was false. You'd simply have to reflect on it and um, think about it. Uh, so we could have picked anything, right? We could have. We could have said, made up like a fake news report that these mathematicians at MIT have in, invented like a square with five sides, something like that. You know, um, I remember their weekend update and SNL had this sketch. I think it was like, um, forget who it was. It might have been Kevin Nealon or something like that. 
the report was like, uh, scientists and mathematicians have discovered a new number. The number exists between five and six, and they're calling it the number spleen. You know, something like that, which is like just impossible. Yeah. So, um, so come up with something that could be disproven by reason alone, and at the same time, surround it with this wealth of online information. Yeah. Um, supporting its veracity. So, like, you know, it was kind of a social experiment. So I was like, have we, are we so far beyond rational thinking? That even something that can be disproven a priori, people would believe. And it was like, we didn't really know the answer to that. But we were going to commit to creating this thing as though it was real, and but which was like logically impossible. So in a way, it anticipated the age of like disinformation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it was, was just... Yeah. The thing I kind of alluded to in my little scripted portion is that like, yeah, it wasn't just the YouTube video. There was also all this extra online content that was created. Um, some of which Fake was articles, released. right? Some of it, yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. So like there was you, you could find like articles, forum posts, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, like, like if yeah, like so if you could look into it more and find these other things, but it still contradicts the basic logical processes that we can use to discern what is real and what is not. Um in right, terms of right. like yeah, in terms of like believing in a five-sided square, like no, that's not what that that's that, that's not how like physics and like spatial like spatial dimensions work. Um, right. So yeah, and, and then in terms of uh, all the extra material you filmed for it, there was like there was like I think I read around like nine hours of documentary footage was also created. Well, it was a lot, like a lot of footage, but it was only made into like probably a thirty-minute thing. Um, we got our friends like at the very, very beginning, we got our friends to play along with it. Like, so whenever you see posts about this, just comment, like it's real, like, yeah, I was there and it was really great. And, um, eventually people would actually start visiting the stairwell, like from all over, like from Canada, they'd cross the border to get there because it's in upstate New York. Right. Um, and I, I actually ran into a couple from India who happened to be visit, visiting New York and they were like, since we're here, we'd like to see the stairwell, that sort of thing. Um, oh no. <laughs> I know. I, f I felt really bad for a lot of the visitors. So we actually had to come up with souvenirs so that they wouldn't leave empty handed. Right. So we made fake, po we, we made postcards like saying I've been to the Sharon stairwell, stuff like that. Programs. That is, that is so good. And um, what happened and the way we explained it. So a lot of people were really mad, actually, you know, as you can imagine when they got yeah. there. But after um, we would explain what we were doing to them with the project, like a lot of them actually like started playing along and thought it was really cool. And they went home with their souvenirs and told their friends that they just saw this amazing thing. So, you know, it kind of built that way for a little bit. I mean, yeah, cause um, it's, it's like telling kids that Santa isn't real. Um, exactly and then exactly. some of them will be like play along with like okay cool this means i can play along with the myth to help keep other kids happy right. and some of them will be like what oh no my entire reality is broken how can right, this happen right. right and when you find out it's your turn to like pass it on and exactly like see that so a lot of that was going on like Shaq, the basketball player posted about it at some point <laughs> joe rogan talked about it on his podcast oh my god it got kind of crazy <laughs> Wait, wait, yeah. did, did did Joe Rogan know it wasn't real? <laughs> um, it's funny, you should see the clip of him doing it because he was like, it was him and who's the other guy, Bert Kreiser or something. 
Anyway, they were arguing about whether or not it was real. The other guy was like, no, it's real. It's so real. Oh, that's Joe great. Rogan was like, all, all you guys are fucking idiots. You're all idiots. So let's Google it right now. And they is... Google it and they look up an article and Joe, Joe Rogan's like, okay, yeah, all right. It's still fucking stupid. The guy who built it is fucking stupid. You know, that really is so good. No! <laughs> yeah. I you have you have no idea how happy you have made me because I in my in my research but like I, I I have like read your thesis I read all the I read lots, lots 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 of articles about this I did not come across the Joe Rogan clip but I would have yeah. loved to see that right right um it's like way back right it's like ten years ago and it's like yeah, a lot yeah. of stuff to dig through and I found it though again um so. Yeah. I like to kind of go into like the logistics of like actually doing this in terms of like creating all the fake like web content, but also like, you know, dreaming up this like family friendly science show that's made by RIT and like how like, you know, the thing between like naturalism and realism and making it like playing, uh, not trying to like replicate reality, but playing it as if it were reality and how those, those are two different things. Um, yeah, we, what well, we wanted to make it as real as possible and like that's what i were, was i'd been studying anyway but in like a dramatic context like yeah. making narrative films um and the idea was to um there's this event at rit every year which gets a lot of people like thirty thousand people a year go uh -huh. to the campus and look at like um these uh whatever the students are working on it's kind of like a mini like festival type thing well, not many. It's pretty big. So we dis we wanted to make a video for that event um, as though we were promoting the event. Hey, come see the Asherian Stairwell when you get here at RIT. Um, and, you know, you normally for these like for these <laughs> for these events, if you have a booth or something, you'll see reservations and you'll see like four people reserved, 15 people like we were like started getting nervous. And we found out we got a sense that this was going to be big because like when I looked at like the re reservations for a like our non-existent stairwell there were like 1000 plus visitors <laughs> no! waiting to visit it um yeah i still remember like going to campus that day of the festival saturday and like my friend ira like comes up to me he's like mike people want to kill you like come get over here and i was like trying to not show my face but anyway yeah that's what so what the way like a lot of the legs of the project was just like word of mouth, I guess. And we actually ran out of money. Um, we didn't get to do like the web stuff on the scale that we wanted to. But it, yeah. it turned out that we didn't even have to. In fact, like within a few days or maybe a week or something after the original video came out, I posted a video explaining that it's yeah. a myth like i posted it and i was like all right that was a fun ride now it's gonna be over because here's a video of me explaining everything on the same people, youtube channel yeah right and people still didn't believe it people no. were saying that my my video explaining was fake that was a conspiracy like people were you know like who they're paid so, you they're to so invested inside the inside the actual myth of it yeah because it is right, right it is so much for a lot of people, they've thought that is more compelling than the idea that it is this like, you know, project around what is real and what's not. They just got so invested in the reality of it that they'll explain away every other explanation. Right, right. Um, exactly. Like my, I had a, a teacher at Rutgers where I did my undergrad, Tim Maudlin. He used to say that, you know, there's two types of thinking. There's reasoning and there's rationalizing. Reasoning is when 
when you start from a place of ignorance and you um, look at the best evidence and the best arguments you can find and follow that through to the, you know, the rational conclusion, rationalizing is when you start from what you want to believe and yeah. working backwards and looking for, you looking know, confirmation, right, you exactly. think. Yeah. right. Looking for the arguments that are already support what you're thinking. And there, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of rationalizing going on, I guess. <laughs> People wanted to believe it. Yeah. So for for the um, how, how much how many people in this? Because I assume for all of like the filming, like like everyone was all like in on it. But yeah, you know, there's a whole bunch of great stuff around. Like all of like the men on the street segments are 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 like perfectly done in terms of like people like just acting like regular university students, like talking about this stairwell and like how they've got like lost and then they're like looping around in a circle. Um, and all the segments with you with, um, like inside the stairwell with all like the very, like the very clever yeah. editing, I assume you're using stuff like Adobe after effects. Um, right. and yeah, it's, it, it is played, it's played so well. Like it's, it's, I think part of the part of why it's so successful is that it's not filmed like you would film something too high. Like, like, like for a lot of films when they like want to do like, like, you know, like, like, a the term is like a one where they have like one long shot and then they like hide the transitions in between. Right. You can, you can obviously tell like they're filming it to make these transitions work versus yeah. the way you film this is just how people would film it if they were filming this for real. Um, and yeah. you can definitely tell that. And it's, it is so carefully done because it's not trying to be something. It is, it is just being the thing so earnestly in terms of like how, how the actors like stumble over their lines in the, in like the opening segment, um, like the aesthetics of like all of like the title cards and everything is just so it has this, it has this like aura of earnestness, which I think helps sells the whole project so, so much. Yeah. Yeah, actually, speaking of the show and like the cheesy title cards and stuff, my girlfriend at the time was a producer for this show called this local show called Homework Hotline and where kids call in with their homework and they answer questions about it. I studied the shit out of that show, (laughs) just looking at how (laughs) they built the sets and how cheesy and how awkward like the uh, the hosts were, because a lot of it was like a lot of the realism, I think of it is just um. Yeah, the awkwardness of the people, how it's not um it's not really meant to be and and like like the best the most convincing untruths, right? Is a combination of fact and fiction. Yeah. And you know, a lot of and blending in the actors with real people, you know, in 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 the in the actual video, stuff like that. It's like yeah, like it comes out 2013, goes goes pretty viral. Um you like pretty quick create a very easy explanation for no it's not it's not real it's part of this project people still believe it for years and years um as kind of the decade progresses and we go into like the era of disinformation everyone starts getting phones in their pockets everyone has facebook with them wherever they go everyone has twitter with them wherever they go how is kind of your views on like the ethics of the project and what it demonstrates in terms of like a case study and like a social experiment like how has that changed over the years from like you like 10 years ago when you're driving this up to you now after, you know, we've had stuff like, you know, like January 6th right. and QAnon, you know, all these types of things, which I feel like have al- are almost like foreshadowed in this, in this weird way by showing how successful your little project is. Yeah. Um, so a lot of, a lot of the criticisms that it was faced from the get-go, like from RIT professors even, is still facing right now. Like it's still the type of thing 
people bring up, which is essentially that, hey, there's so much disinformation out there. At the time, we weren't even using those terms, disinformation, no, misinformation, no, yeah. right? But basically, people were, were, were bringing up the same complaints, which is there's so much disinformation out there. You're basically just adding to it. What, what are you even doing? So I guess the idea is that, and you know, it's a very noble idea, which is what's our response to disinformation, right? We should, I guess the idea is we should call out every instance of it when we can, flag posts, um, report posts that violate communi community standards, you know, speak out, um, provide counter evidence when you see fake news, that sort of thing. And I think that's great. That's a good thing. Um, but disinformation, the problem with disinformation is at the time, this is kind of how I explained it like 10 years ago. I, I described it as a pan, as an epidemic. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. Or, or like a cockroach infestation. Like every time you kill one, 10 more spring up. And the, this, this notion of like, we got to call out every instance of disinformation and stomp it away is like, it's great, but you're focused on killing cockroaches. Yeah, it's like addressing the symptoms, not the actual problem. Right. I want to get to the cockroach's nest, right? And whenever whenever I give talks about this um, this project, people always approach me afterwards, you know, like wanting me to kind of... Because we, we don't just talk about this project. We talk about like deep fake stuff. Like we okay. show speeches of Obama, like looking like the real Obama, but it's like yeah. completely fake, right? And people start to realize, holy shit, like, I don't even know what's real or not anymore. Like, what can I trust? And they approach me, expecting me to ease their anxiety somehow and kind of like guide them through how to discern what's true from what's not, as though my project was about finding some sort of solution. And I tell them that, like, my project wasn't about solving the problem. It was about seeing the problem, right? It's about... It's about trying to get to the heart of the matter. And it's like, to me, I think like the heart of the matter, like the cockroach's nest is the, I don't know, you, there are different ways to say it, but basically the, um, the lack of critical thinking in individuals and like in the society we shape together or, um, or lack of a willingness to think through things carefully. Maybe that's, that's, um, that's, like if we had a society of critical thinkers, this wouldn't be much of a problem. I right? think it's because so many people come at a lot of information from like what you would say the rational viewpoint of like they're trying to use reason and stuff. Like they're trying to think critically, they're trying to think like logically, but they come at it in the terms of rationalizing stuff they already believe. Um, and I right. think that's a very prevailing type of idea in terms of like, yes, I'm gonna believe in this thing, so now I'm gonna find evidence to to support it. Um and Which isn't critical thinking, I don't think. I not mean, really. No, like, that, it, is, that is itself right. a logical fallacy, but that is so common, especially on the internet, because the internet it encourages the backfire effect. You know, whenever someone calls out on something, you want to be right. So you're gonna. It's as soon as as soon as someone calls you something, you're going to backfire. You're going to like become even more entrenched in what you believe. Um, right. When you you know when when you explain to someone that no Hillary Clinton is bad but she doesn't eat the blood of children like no she does I, I saw all this thing I have to believe it because like all of the things are tied up in what makes you a person now all of these like ideas that have that were used to be just be conspiracy theories that you could believe in for fun are now so a part of like what people's sense of being are and how they have their entire worldview that there's so much more 
because the internet is such a bigger part of their lives, everything on the internet is a bigger part of their lives for each person. So it is more of an ontological threat because these things are so closer together now, right? There used to be much more of a distinction between the internet and you because you could only access the computer every once in a while. We can now carry around a supercomputer wherever we go. So it is like a part of you, like you bring it with you almost everywhere. It's always in your pocket. Uh, so these things are so like stitched together that prying them apart and, and telling people, no, this thing you carry around Actually, probably most of what you see on it isn't isn't actually true. Like there is, people can like believe that in their heads, but don't actually don't actually the, the belief doesn't actually impact them because like we all know that there's like we we all know that people can just go on the internet and lie, right? That is like a right. part of the joke, but we still don't act like it. Like oftentimes we get so we get so like encased into the stories that we tell ourselves, right? The part of why the sharing stairwell is so good is that. It's such a it's such a compelling story like that like the idea of like a brilliant architect bringing like you know building this paradox in the real world is right. like a, is is so much more fun than being like yeah some dude just knows how to use Adobe After Effects like <laughs> right, right? right so you get so entrenched in the storytelling because the the story of like politicians eating the eating the blood of children is so much more interesting than no politicians just don't care about you like. And right. getting to the heart of that problem is so much more difficult than just, you know, debunking things because you can debunk things all day. And does that actually matter? Yeah. And I think there, there's, there's a secondary problem that like, you know, there's another, le like a, a, another level of it, which is that, yeah, like everyone knows that there's information now, like everyone does, but, but that just makes it worse because now if you want to do this information, what you can claim is like, Oh, Hey, look at all these other times that uh, all this stuff has been fake. And then, you know, and this is how you get everyone like, doing frame by frame analyses of like a bombing and going, Oh, these are all crisis right, actors. Right. Exactly. And it's like, you know, and, and you, you, you talk to these people and they're like, Oh yeah, no, I, 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 I did, I did the research. Look, I like, I saw through the lies. And it's like, no, you've just completely made this thing up in your head. But like you can see the green screen compression. And you're like, no, it's just regular video compression. And it's like, yeah, like everyone can be a detective now. So everyone can be so convinced of their own conclusions, even when the conclusions turn out to be not true. Right. It's a problem. I mean, if there was an easy solution, we wouldn't have yeah. the problem, right? It's one of those things where it's like your project's a very good example of like it's it's a, it's a very demonstrative thing. You can like you you take someone along this journey and demonstrate, hey, this can happen to you, so you should watch out for it, right? Look look right. at the story I crafted. Look how you become convinced of it for these six minutes, and then you think, oh wait, no, you can't teleport to a bottom stairwell. That's not that's not how that works. Um, but because you take them on that journey it's a very it's a i love it so much as like a demonstrative process being like so like this can happen so watch out for it in the future which i think is right. honestly more useful than just debunking somebody because you, right, can, de right. you can debunk all day you can have the backfire effect and stuff yeah but... and you're right about the uh demonstrative stuff because it's like if a bunch of film students and volunteers with no connections and no resources pulled this off, like we did like a tally of all the videos at the end of the year of, um, you know, all the videos that ripped it off and posted on their own channels and all that. Um, it was like 50 million, right? So if, yes. if a bunch of film students like had that much influence, what more can like people who are actually fun, like government political power yeah. <laughs> right. and resources, right? What could they do? And we were just doing, and ours was about like this innocuous, silly stairwell. It wasn't about anything that would cause, you know, anyone's death or anything like that. Yeah. Or 
and, and let, you know, something like in Myanmar, where the Myanmar military cr- basically systemically, systematically created fake articles and fake photos to create, like, to, to arouse disdain for the Rohingya people. And base, they incited a genocide through Facebook, just through fake news, right? In the Philippines, where I live right now, um, which uh, a lot of commentators call like the patient zero of disinformation, because in 2016, this guy called Duterte uh, was elected president, basically ran it, running his entire campaign on disinformation. And after him was Brexit, like a month later. And after that was Trump got the nomination. So like, what's her name? Kate, Katie Barth. Barthar or something like that. Uh, the exe- one of the executives of Facebook referred to the Philippines as patient zero in the era of disinformation because, like, um, and the thing that Duterte, the president here right now, was running on was basically like the same sort of um, othering and scapegoating of a certain group. And he said, basically, he's the guy who said like. Basically, if you're a drug user or a drug dealer, it should be okay to murder you and kill you. And that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. Because they were posting all these stories about, um, you know, the same sorts of stories that that, that we saw in the U.S. in 2016 about undocumented immigrants or Muslims or something like that. This like, oh, this undocumented immigrant raped a five-year-old girl. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And he would the 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 um the organized campaign um making up stories about drug addicts like murdering and raping people basically like got an entire nation to well not an entire nation but basically this guy won the election and you know we have a country right now that basically lived through just atrocities the last five six years you know and like the double-edged sword of this like what chris mentioned is like yeah it could, this type same type of thing because it exists people also like retroactively apply it to like you know like sandy hook was staged or like even stuff now with like you know the pandemic right people be like right what if what if what if the pandemic isn't real what if all these people have just you know yeah. conjured this thing into being and it's right. all a giant misinformation campaign right so it has this dual it has this double-edged sword nature um, which makes combat and disinformation so challenging. So it's like disinformation to combat disinformation to combat the idea of disinformation. And yeah. there's so many layers of it now. There's, 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 it's just, yeah, it did, makes, did, it makes actually getting to the heart of it so much more challenging because it's been abstracted so many times. Yeah. Like and, one of the things I was, I was remembering, what didn't, didn't the New York times, weren't they the first people to come up with the term fake news? And then Trump started using it after like, or maybe it was Washington Post. I forget which newspaper it was, but my my memory of it was like it was it was it was the media that came up with fake news, and then like Trump just took it and it became this like this just like demon they absolutely could not control and was just turned on them. Do you do you remember the context in which they used it uh, for the I first think they time? Were, like they they were I think they were calling like stuff that Trump said fake news. Mm, um, okay. Let me. I am I'm unsure of at the moment who specifically coined that term. But I mean we definitely see terms like even like even terms like disinformation, which used to be more tied to like a Discordian philosophy, breaking like in like even even back even as back far as like the 80s, getting you know turned into an actual like political term so, that um, everybody uses. 
So I'm reading that it was actually somebody from BuzzFeed. An editor at BuzzFeed was one of the That people. makes sense. Craig mm. Silverman mm. is one of the ones who first popularized it. Uh but was it in twenty sixteen? Yeah, there, but there could be there could be, you know, several other people that say that they coined it. I don't know. I mean, I even, there's even a, 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 a an illustration from 1894 <laughs> by by Frederick Offer with reporters carrying newspapers labeled "Humble News," uh, "Cheap Sensation," and "Fake News." So right. it's I mean, in terms of in terms of just mashing words together, I'm sure it has it's had a decent history, but definitely right. Trump is the one that like yeah. launched it into the zeitgeist. Right, right, right. Yeah. Let's see, uh, Robert. You've been pretty quiet. I know it's pretty early in the morning for you. Do you have any? Do you have any kind of thoughts to help us kind of generally start closing us out? Not 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 like super immediately, but generally head in that direction. I mean, no, not really. Kind of brought up everything. I would say. All right, all right. It's uh, yeah. Um, I guess uh, uh, uh Mike, what have how has this project kind of impacted how you approach film and just the like how you how you use the internet yourself in the past decade? Hmm. Well, I I'm fully aware of what we did. <laughs> Every time I'm like looking at something, I'm like, could they have done that? <laughs> could they have done this and that? You know, that sort of thing. Um I don't know if it's if yeah, I don't, I'm not sure how it's how this project specifically has impacted me, other than just trying to think through things a bit more carefully, trying to go through things like, um, I mean, like, so we we basically came up with this idea of what eventually became troll farms, right? Like me and like my classmates would, hey, we even make fake accounts and like talk about the stairwell and um so i don't know like a few years later people we we learned that people were actually doing this like to influence like elections around the world and a lot of the strategy of like the russian troll farms and stuff um was to basically create caricature versions right of arguments from whatever side like you know whether it, they they might present an argument from like the left or the right, but in like a caricaturized version of it. And um, so what people would see when they see that, they'd see an argument coming from the other side and they'd ridicule it. Like, look at these people who just seem crazy espousing this whatever view, you know, or they might say things like, um, like, yeah, if you're a Democrat, you want to abort babies at like the ninth month or something like that. Yeah. Which no reasonable person actually argues. So what happens is like um, people talk about how the goal of Russia was to like polarize, you know, um, polarize the uh, political spectrum. I think like the bigger goal and the the goal that we're going to be un untangling for many, many years and the, the, the more... Um, the more difficult problem to deal with was that they 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 successfully oversimplified discourse. You know what I'm saying? Like they found a way to like oversimplify the type of discourse we're having because everyone's like arguing with such simplistic. I, I'm not sure if I'm making sense. It's like it's like it's like the, the, the term I use is like politics as fandom. 
right, um, right, right. And that's I, th- I think that like intersects. It's, it's, it's not exactly what you're saying, but it, like it, it, it intersects with that type of idea of like right. condensing down actual discussions on like what you believe in um, and what politics you want and how you want to improve the world into this weird fandom lens of like this team versus this team, which we 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 we, we we've had a degree of that for a long, long time, but with the internet and how how discussions on the internet are designed to work, right? How, how algorithms want to boost content, right, how there's right, always these right. short snippets. Exactly. It just, it mirrors the way people discuss like what Star Wars character is their favorite. It's just that, but for politics. Right. Um, so it's, it's just this like, what if politics is just this idea of fandom and you can debate what fandom is more valid than the other, right? I like The Last Jedi more. You like Rise of Skywalker. This means your version of reality is less good than mine. So I mean, that, is, that is objectively true. If, if, you, which if is, you like which, the Rise of Skywalker which, which more, your version true, of reality right? is wrong. But, <laughs> Let's be clear here. It's that, it's that same idea, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but for how we like make social programs and how we address yeah. racism and how we like give food to poor people and how we do affordable housing and how we handle the police. So it's that type of idea, which is just. Well, I mean, the, the disinformation kind of impacts this in part because mm-hmm. when you flood the zone with so much conflicting information that people can't really get a handle on or easily sort of like when they're, when, when you've, when you've put that much confusion into the air, um, it makes people more likely to just kind of grasp at sides because everything coming out is way too complicated and messy and it's it takes too much work right, to figure right. out what's actually true. So holding to some rubric of, well, I believe this, so that means these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, and I don't have to, to analyze it any deeper than that. I can reject information that comes from this group or I can re- reject information that says this. Um, because I I just category categorically reject you know anything that that fits in with that like that's the benefit of disinformation for authoritarians of all stripes you're seeing it in Ukraine right now where um, you've got all of these different authoritarian powers you've got Turkey you've got Russia you've got um, you know fucking the the United States at least to the extent that like we inter- impact a lot of things internationally. Um, and you've got them all coming down on different sides of, of this issue and of what's happening in Ukraine. And because there's so much disinformation and misinformation about what's going on, people just kind of grasp at, well, whatever side I'm have been more sympathetic to recently, I'm just going to believe whatever they say, because right. it's way too complicated to actually analyze what's going on. Yeah, and right, this was right. this was a thing that that I mean, this was explicit on the left. I, I remember this. There was this around um, 2017, 2018. There was a whole thing about how like people people like talking about anti-imperialism would would literally say like nuance nuances liberalism. Uh, don't like nuances liberalism. Don't don't research this. Don't think about this because nuance is how liberals like you know spread sort of pro pro regime change propaganda. Like I, I remember those people like Amber Frost just just straight oh, up said this. And this was a huge, and you know, like I, I, I got a lot of shit for this because, you know, like I, I remember when, when, when the coup in Bolivia happened, like I, I made a giant thread that was trying to, that was like, okay, we need to figure out like how specifically the CIA was involved in this. Like, okay, so did they plan the whole thing? Was it like, were they working with local partners? Was it a thing where someone else planned it and they signed off on it? And like, to this day, people think that I supported the coup because I was like, we should figure out who was, who the actors were on the ground because no one like this, 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 this became like an, an, like, like, a, a, like a, a tenet, like, a, like an actual sort of like, like political tenets of, 
of how a lot of anti-imperialism like in the American left worked was you you were not supposed to do nuance and you were not supposed to look at who was like you know if 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 you spent too long looking at what was going on on the ground people would be like you you work for the CIA and that yeah. you know I think like we 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 finally seen that basically blow up in their faces because you know oh hey look how many of these people just like wound up supporting Russia and then spent like three months saying that Russia would never invade Ukraine, then this happens. But it's, I don't know, it's, 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 it's extremely depressing how people who otherwise are, you know, like, like in, in, in a lot of ways, like I've spent a lot of their time, like trying to, you know, filter out stuff from the media that's false, just go into this because they just do not want to deal with the complexity of reality. Yeah. And it's just it's- easier not to. <laughs> Again, if there was a simple problem, we wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, if, if there was a simple solution, we wouldn't need to discuss the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I guess basically, like, just to like um, answer that question about how it, I guess at the time, I'd say like we got an up close look at how things were going to be. Like, you know, with, with all these things, we, it, we, it kind of anticipated the next few years. Um, so yeah, that's basically what happened. Um, Sorry yep. to interrupt your closing, but that's... no, no, no. It's the it's the best note that that we can go. Um, Mike, do you, uh, where can people find you online, and if people want to look into some of your other projects? I mean, you found me. Like, <laughs> I guess if they want to find me, they'll find me, right? I don't know. I still don't know how you got my email. But Gar- but, Garrison um... is extremely good about this. Don't worry. <laughs> right, Not that many right. people are that good. Uh, yeah, well, they could check out the YouTube channel. Like, I'm gonna be posting some new films this year, probably. Um, so my name, Michael Lakanilao, uh, or just search the Asherians there. Well, I guess that's a way. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll add your uh, YouTube channel to to the description. Yeah, and I just want to thank you uh, so much for coming on to talk about your uh, your project. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate All right, well. It. That that does it for us today. You can follow us on the internets for some reason. Um, on Twitter and Instagram at Happen Here Pod and Cool Sub Media. And yeah, uh, go go create a, a a myth that people will believe and travel from out of country to walk over some stairs because that sounds like fun. Go do something like that for fun, funsies. All right, bye bye. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features.
Spears presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit NFL.com slash schedule release to learn more. It could happen here, Uh, it being a number of things. Uh, This is the podcast about things falling apart and also maybe putting them back together and assuming there is not a nuclear war in the immediate future. You will probably be hearing this episode sometime in early March. Uh, I am Robert Evans, my co-hosts as always, well, as often, uh, Chris and Garrison, and that's that's my job for the day done. I'm going to I'm going to sit back and chill. You guys want to take it from here? Yeah, I'll take it from here. We are doing one of our perennial mm-hmm. things fall apart, but also we sort of put them back together again episodes. And joining us today is JMC from Strange Matters, a new libertarian socialist cooperative magazine. JMC, great to have you here. Yeah, this is really great. So I guess we should probably explain what the magazine is, yeah. uh, not just in and of itself, but also because it's a good lead in into um, uh into what we're going to be talking about. So we basically, uh, there's five of us as co-editors and we're all equal worker owners in it. It's a magazine called Strange Matters. And uh, the, the the point of it is to explore radical new ideas, not just in terms of politics and economics, which is going to be kind of half the focus is trying to figure out like, you know, libertarian socialists talk a lot about dual power, which I know y'all talk about on the show a lot, talk about building independent institutions under the direct democratic control of the working class that control real resources and are not the state or capitalist firms. But like we talk a big game, but do we actually know how to do that stuff? And do we know how to do stuff like run like, you know, a big company as a uh, uh, as a self-managed democracy? Or do we know how to like run a city as a as a radical democracy, like rooted in neighborhood councils or anything like that? The answer kind of is not really. And there's a lot of like um, open questions that we don't know yet the answers to and that very few people are working on those answers. So Strange Matters is um, partly about discovering uh those answers not because we the editors have the answers but because we need like some kind of space within which we can bring lots of different people with different life experiences together uh in order to talk about the stuff uh, and figure it out and then the other mission of it is to be a kind of general interest literary intellectual magazine doing the kind of journalism and philosophy and poetry and memoir and stuff like that that uh that uh 
perhaps gets shut out of capitalist society because it's not commercial or because it's too weird or because it's like, I don't know, uh, a historiographical essay about Ibn Khaldun or something like that, yeah. you know, and we, and we think that there should be a place for that um, just because it brings delight and meaning into people's lives. And it's what we're fighting for a more democratic society in order to do. So that's basically our vibe. Um, and the essay in question is a collective editorial that we uh, that we collectively drafted and edited, uh, talking about our political views in particular and the recent history of libertarian socialism. Um, and then, as for me, I'm uh, uh, I'm a writer who's written for a couple other places like uh, the the Point and the Brooklyn Rail, uh, and I also was involved in uh, the DSA's Libertarian Socialist Caucus and also uh, yes. the. Uh, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> old friends, uh, that's, old that's, enemies. That's, yeah, right. Well, not exactly. so much in the LLC, but yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of history there. Trauma, you know, some, some, uh, yeah. But anywho, uh, and uh, also the Symbiosis Federation, um, which is a, a federation across Mexico, the US and Canada that is trying to uh, put together. It's a, it's a confederation of local organizations that are trying to do this kind of direct democracy stuff. Yeah, so I guess, well, okay, so the pandemic isn't, I guess, perfect jumping in point for this but i want to go back and i guess just get get, get getting into the meat of this piece because i think it's very interesting i wanted to sort of talk about the the origins of like what's called sort of neo-anarchism and how it sort of began to decay after sort of after the collapse of occupy and after well i guess the the, the, sort, the sort of kind of revolutionary arc of, of the 2010s so basically before you do the decline, at least is the way that we wrote it, and I kind of think that it's the way that I would tell it, um, you have to kind of do the rise first, right? Because, like, there was this moment from roughly the fall of the Soviets in 91 to roughly, like, 2000, and even kind of lingering in an afterlife afterwards where it kind of looked like anarchism was going to take over the world. And that's a bit of a joke, but it's also not a joke because in the context of like the radical left, which is of course, obviously a kind of like, you know, dissident scene in any country where it happens to exist. Um, you know, everything receded in terms of the traditional parties because the fall of these Soviet style uh, Leninist states uh, either through their, collapse as in the case of the USSR uh, or in the case of their transition to a much more like clearly and obviously like state capitalist uh, semi neoliberalized uh, model like in China, like the, the, you, you basically had like this total recession, not just in Leninism, interestingly, which uh, obvious enough, right? Like, you know, it's basically a global collapse of Leninist style governments, but also in like social democracy, um, because it a lot of the I mean, it's actually kind of interesting why it's it's unclear why it is. Uh, uh, people have different theories, but they're, you know, people often describe it in in um you know, Fisher's term, the, the, the writer, Mark Fisher, uh, capitalist realism. The attitude in the 90s was uh, that, uh, you know, there's there's only one world that's possible and it's the best of all possible worlds. And that's the capitalist world where everybody's going to have McDonald's in every country and two countries that have the same McDonald's are never going to go to war, which uh, <laughs> we kind of found out the hard way this week that that's not really the case. 
Um, well, and if people had paid attention more to other parts of the world, they would know that like, well, there were civil wars in a bunch of countries that had McDonald's. It didn't yeah. stop people from shooting each other. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's absolutely right. Yeah. As, as the United States should tell you, people will kill each other whether or not they have access to chicken McNuggets. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think like that that's a period that has... It's full of the most wrong anyone has ever been. Like you got your Fuki- Francis Fukuyama, like the most wrong person ever. You've got, yeah, you, you've got a lot of sort of ideologues who, like, have sort of deluded themselves into, into thinking this stuff is over. And yeah, and I, th- I think you're right that 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 sort of plays into this, you know, in, into sort of the collapse of, of of, I guess the 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 party state left, and then the way in which that, you know, the the alternative to that, I guess becomes neo-anarchism and anarchist practice, even if it's not necessarily ideology with all the groups, kind of seeps its way into the rest of the activist scene? Yeah, so basically the story that we tell is that there's, um, you know, the Zapatista Rebellion in 1994 triggers these, uh, it's not just that the Zapatistas are able to create their autonomous territory in Chiapas, but they, it triggers this wave uh, that um, we use a term that sometimes is used in academia called neo-anarchism uh, for this. Um, you know, there's an anarchist revival in the 90s um, around the world. And it's not just people calling themselves anarchists. It's all these movements that were inspired by the uh, libertarian socialists, uh, broadly speaking, uh, Zapatistas, um, adopting kind of similar methods in their local contexts in different countries, fighting against, I mean, a lot of things. Initially, it's against like, you know, neoliberal trade deals, but it also ends up being against like sweatshops because that's basically what a lot of outsourcing is, is, you know, if, if they have unions, in this country from the social democratic period they shut down the factory fire everybody move it to some place where uh some dictatorship is going to shoot anybody who tries to do a union uh and then that you know that that lowers uh logistics has gotten sophisticated enough by this point that you know it ends up being cheaper for the company even though they have to transport goods all across the world and do just-in-time delivery and that kind of thing so um the a lot of the 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 anti globalization movement that sprouted up around uh, the 2000s was like um, against all these things and usually using the kinds of direct actions, uh, which is when you act kind of independent of the state and not trying to like you know convince a politician to do something, but taking direct action to get your result your desired result, um, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, that were ba- ed- using like direct democratic consensus methods uh, in the way that they organized stuff. Uh, that that was that was all basically anarchistic, and so there was this way in which anarchist methods, anarchist tactics, anarchist like attitudes towards what activism even is started filtering into all these other movements. And this has been happening a little bit in the eighties too. So there was like the anti nuclear movement had a lot of this. The 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 feminist movement had a lot of this. Um, there was a whole. Um, stream of single uh, the ecological movements uh were actually like pioneered in a lot of ways by anarchists in the 90s um so as well as indigenous movements in places like mexico bolivia etc so the the this is the kind of like rise of this neo-anarchist milieu that we're talking about which is not just about anarchists it's about people who act and think like anarchists without necessarily identifying as it yeah i mean that's the kind of thing that I hope we can kind of more encourage as well in the next few decades as those types of ideas can be. I, 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 want, I want to make sure that we can take these ideas and make them very approachable for, for people. Even if they don't use the terms that we might use, you can still kind of 
suggest these types of thoughts and this suggests these types of kind of lenses and viewpoints. As much as we're about to get to how this sort of goes wrong or fails in some sense, like I think that was the strength of this movement was that it was it, 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 it its tactics were really easy to spread. And that led to a lot of people adopting it. It led to it sort of becoming this, I guess, activist consensus that, you know, like you use things like consensus process, you, you know, you, you have horizontal organizations, you have, you do direct actions, you mobilize people and you don't have these sort of like hierarchical like parties, but that, yeah. And I think, I think the next part of the, the story that you want to tell is about, I guess, how that fell apart and the consequences of that. Basically what ends up, happening is that like there was this moment of our ascent because i would identify myself as being definitely like part of these uh the the this general milieu i mean i I came i hopped aboard a lot later with like occupy wall street but a lot of the kind of explosion of movements that happened around the world in 2011 again not always right it started with the arab spring which started with somebody setting themselves on fire in tunisia and like you know and then that spreads to um other countries in the Middle East and, um, you know, protests against dictatorships and so on. But it starts getting kind of like transported beyond its initial Middle Eastern context. And what a lot of people don't know is that the, uh, the, the Occupy Wall Street movement in North America uh, and like other movements that, you know, some of them were called Occupy, some of them, I'm one of them was Maidan in Ukraine, as a matter of fact, um, and other uh, like, you know, the, the Hong Kong, uh, the, the, the uh, the umbrella well, movements, yeah. yeah, the and all these kind of movements that that proceeded from after 2011, a lot of them were basically in a single kind of wave, uh, a protracted wave of copycat movements uh, that were trying to adopt the same kind of tactics of like occupying public squares, uh, declaring them basically autonomous, and doing like direct democracy in those squares, modeling the kind of society that they that people wanted to create. Um, you know, in this moment where it seemed like you could uh, have these uh, direct democratic uh, sorts of movements, the the and in the U.S. there's like a direct line of succession from like Occupy Wall Street through to like Black Lives Matter through to like the uh, anti pipeline uh, indigenous protests. There's a lot of like shared movement experience, a lot of the same people showing up to it or teaching the next generation um, in those movements. And I think this is something. I mean. Uh, it's difficult to find like sources on this, but I mean, y'all are involved in social movements. I think that that's like a rough, that's roughly a description of, of what's happened. Right. Uh, unless, unless we're crazy. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think, I guess what you call the last wave of that is Occupy ICE in 2018. 2018. Yeah. 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 You know, like I remember like that was a sort of mix of, I guess, two crowds. One is you know, I mean, like I, I, I remember it was a bunch of, you know, people who'd been in Occupy and then also it was a lot of people who'd been radicalized essentially yeah. by Trump. Yeah, there and, was there was a pretty big new wave of people. Yeah, around around 2016. And that you know, and I guess I guess the other thing that, that that's going on through this period is the 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 ascension of ascension of the right and the return also not just of you know, not just a sort of the the, the the fascist right, but of Leninism and social democracy as well. Yeah. Um, this yeah, has also that's... happened around like when Bernie Sanders was getting more popular. Yeah, yeah, and yes. I, I think I think I think there's there's you know there's a couple of there's like two threads here. There, there's the sort of Bernie Sanders thread, and then there's you know like the, the the rise of the rise of the tankies, which 
has to do with Syria and has to do with sort of the, this backlash against the, the the 2011 revolutions that, you know, like some, some of that backlash turns into like just, you know, like Erdogan's like hard right. Ter- well, I mean, he was never like not a right wing, but like er- Erdogan's turn into just like firebombing cities and um Right, the, and, yeah, and but, Assad yeah. as well, like, you know, literally yeah. barrel bombing, you know, the peaceful protest stuff um, can overthrow governments if the government is not willing to bomb yeah. and shoot people uh, who gather en masse in the central square because they're afraid of what the world's response would be if they did start doing that. But, you know, when Bashar al-Assad did that in Syria against the democratic opposition movements, um, you know, that basically sent the signal. Nothing. I mean, nothing happened to Assad. Right. Nope. So that basically sent the signal that like, oh, he had a stressful have, couple of years. But yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like like you can you can just shoot people and bomb them. And like it and that basically defanged the kind of central tactic that a lot of these movements were trying to do, which is to have like large numbers of people do nonviolent civil disobedience and then through those like direct actions, cultivate this culture of like direct democracy in the hopes that um you know, the assemblies that are created in that space could in some way become the the germ of the organs that could run society. Or at least that's like when it's taken to its logical conclusion, because usually people who are involved in this, they get involved in it. They think the assembly stuff is really cool. They start learning more about it. They get radicalized by being in the assembly, because like when you're in a direct democratic assembly and you're actually making the decisions like together, and then you come to an agreement and you execute the decision, you start asking yourself like, why can't we do everything like this? Um, and then, um, you know, I, that that's what directs a lot of people in this kind of anarchistic direction. But, yeah, one of the reasons why these movements start to decline is because they get smashed. Um, the, uh, But I think that there's always this other thing going on, which – and I wonder how y- y'all felt about this, like, reading it. Like, you know, th- there's there was this kind of both, like, an external critique at first from people like, you know, Bhaskar Sankarov, Jacobin and things like that. But then also like this increasingly over the years in the last half of the 2010s, internal critiques of anarchism coming from anarchists themselves uh, or people in this general kind of milieu, libertarian socialism, talking about how like anarchists didn't have solutions to the most pressing crises in the 21st century. Like if you, like if you guys had to say, I, I know it's like kind of pretentious, but like, what is the most pressing crisis of the 21st century? What are like the top three? Just off the top of your heads, without thinking, what would you list if you had to list three, two or three separate things? Climate change, creeping authoritarianism, and rampant disinformation about basic facts of reality. Sweet. Okay, so let's tackle yeah. each one of those, right? Like, what's what's an anarchist got to say about climate change? Well, okay, disrupt the pipelines, like you know do uh like we, you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet so you have to have like you know we, we have all the slogans right i mean we've all heard them like a million times before. yeah you have the diagnoses of the problem but yeah yeah but then like okay so how are we going to like you know i guess we're going to build some co-ops and then the co-ops are going to democratize production and then we can do degrowth somehow but like also disrupting existing production, but there's like a missing step here, right? Because like, you know, the reason why we have all this production in a certain way is because the entire economy depends on it. It's been set up that way. Uh, 
so how you implied in the idea that we're going to do degrowth somehow is that we need some way of constructing a different economy. And how do you construct a different economy, right? Through some kind of planning. So really the question is like, how do you do economic planning? Uh, second one, um, I'm going to skip creeping authoritarianism for now. Cause that's actually like feeding into the more, the ending of the essay, but the, but the other one, right. Disinformation, another great question, right? Like, what do you do with social media? Like, okay. Again, anarchists talk in general a lot about like, okay, we're going to democratize all the companies because we're, we're democratizing everything. We're democratizing neighborhoods. We're democratizing cities. So it's kind of the same thing, turning everything into like a radical direct democracy. Okay. But if we're going to have social media, first of all, should we? Like, was it a mistake to invent a centralized system instead of the more decentralized internet that created, that existed before social media, right? That's kind of an interesting question. But then assuming that we do, how do we restructure it? Not just in terms of how it's managed, but like, okay, we have the democracy of Facebook or whatever. And let's say that we're the workers at Facebook. What do we do? Like, how do we structure it so that it's not a giant misinformation engine, right? Like once, once you actually have like the responsibility and the power of being in the saddle, which is what we spend so much of our time kind of just trying to do, you have to actually make decisions about what to do. And honestly, there aren't that many. I mean, what do you, what do you do with, with, uh, with an, with a utility like that? Like, for example, who ought to be in control of a utility like that? Is it really just the workers of Facebook? Aren't all the people who are users of it, don't they have a right to be, uh, making decisions about it too and is it just an american institution just because it's an american llc or is it like a global institution because everybody on the planet's on it um is there you know uh are, are there ways that it could be reconfigured like fundamentally in terms of how users use it that would change the experience in some way to actually make it uh make you less liable to misinformation. But on the other hand, if you try to manipulate people in order to, um, you know, not see something that's going to be misinformation, isn't that, well, you know, like censorship <laughs> or, or, or some other thing that we generally would oppose, right? Like the, the tool of centralized social control. So they, like, these are really deep questions. And again, this generally a kind of, silence. And of course, you know, in that case, there's silence from the social Democrats too. And there's silence from the Leninists. I mean, well, the Leninists just kind of fantasize about turning Facebook into the, the tool the central party state uses in order to crush dissent forever or whatever. But, you know, social Democrats are like, let's nationalize Facebook. And it's like, you know, yeah, sure. We could, we could do that. And then, you know, the NSA owns, owns Facebook. I'm sure that that's a, that's a better scenario. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I tend to think somewhat differently about what it means to have an anarchist solution to those problems. Like, for example, I don't, I don't see anarchists or social Democrats or Leninists having any kind of stopping climate change solution. Um, mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't realistically see the organizing potential, um, capable of actually stopping what's going on in any kind of reasonable time frame. And I, I certainly don't think that the existing, you know, neoliberal structures or the authoritarian structures that exist in, you know, other countries or in this country are going to stop it either. So when I think about solutions to climate change from an anarchist perspective, I think about how can anarchist organizing help people deal with the consequences of climate change? And, and I, I see, I tend to see the potential for actually like mitigating climate change coming more from there's as the consequences of this become more dire to people if anarchists are better are good at 
providing relief and helping people and organizing through that, then eventually there's some potential to actually get people organized to stop the causes of the problem. But um, I just don't, I, I'm not an optimist of, of about our ability to stop the worst of it at this point, um, uh, especially not after the most recent IPCC report. And I guess I'm kind of in the same boat when it comes to disinformation. Um I and this is not just like anarchists. I feel like lack a, a, a as you've stated a, a like a, a good idea about like what do we do with Facebook? What do we do with YouTube? What do we do with the way all of these things are set up and the harms that they do at scale? Um, nobody, and I include the people currently in charge, has any real good ideas for that because they they haven't. Like I've been working in this space for a very long time. I've I've spent a lot of time talking with and. Uh, debating with a lot of the the folks who are leading minds kind of in the fight against disinformation. And I just don't feel like there's any sort of solution that is an immediate term solution because so many, the problem is so advanced as it is. So as, I guess that's kind of like where I, I le- land on a lot of this stuff is we certainly need to be thinking about solutions but i i kind of like I, I i i think it's less likely that there's going to be like you you were saying the kind of debate is between is there some way of like reforming or fixing making facebook more democratic or is it just we need to decide that maybe we don't have some of this stuff and i tend to land towards that that like well i think the solution is going to be maybe maybe facebook's a bad idea maybe we should maybe we shouldn't have there's aspects of it that are necessary obviously and i i think aspects of things like telegram and and twitter that are useful but um i i think the, 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 the they're also fundamentally tied to the algorithms that drive them which is also what drives so much of the toxic aspects that i think if you're divorcing the medium from the algorithm you're talking about something that is very different. And it's I don't, no I don't, longer the media. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's no it's longer just, the medium. It's, yeah. it's so radically different that it's just it's it's not even useful to compare them. It's like yeah. it's like it's like comparing Discord to Facebook. It's like they're not they don't operate the same way. That's the, yeah. That's exactly kind of where I where I I tend to be on on that. And I know that's not like I I to the extent that like. Uh, that's pessimistic. I guess I am kind of pessimistic about anarchism's ability to stop the worst of things that's happening. Where I kind of look at myself as an optimistic anarchist is is in the, I, I believe anarchism offers solutions when these things go as badly as they're going to do in a way that, you know, the present systems or, you know, uh, more authoritarian systems that people propose can't solve the worst consequences of these problems as as well. That's that's kind of where I I feel like it, I land. It is can feel a lot simpler to default to like the dual power f- framework of a lot of these things because otherwise the problems are so complex that you cannot approach them from 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 every angle. So you really do need to simplify and condense them and collapse them into something that is more simplified, which often results in like a dual power kind of framework well, for what you actually start doing. Yeah, and I, I think you have to. I think if you're uh, an insurrectionist, if you're a revolutionary, whether it, you're an anarchist or, or you know a, a, a Leninist or whatever, you have to be looking at what's actually happening in Ukraine right now, and recognize that. All right, well, to what extent do you think you're going to be able to organize people in such a way that allows them to deal with thermobaric weapons? You know, in what way are you going to organize people? that allows them to effectively resist cluster munitions. 
Um, and I, I think that when you kind of look at it that way, which is what it would take to overthrow any of the, the, the large hegemonic powers in the world right now, a much more realistic set of solutions is, all right, well, let's work on building power by building organizations and communities that are capable of, of taking care of themselves in the holes that these powers are increasingly going to be experiencing because because they too are crumbling. And that's much smarter than being like, all right, well, I'm going to try to get a bunch of my friends with rifles and and arm up a couple of drones and and go up against, you know, people who have access to MLRS, you know, weapon systems and whatnot. Yeah, no, I think that that's a really great point. Um, I The way that I would think about it is – the starting with the big picture problems is a bit misleading because, as you said, mm-hmm. like nobody, it's quite likely yeah. that nobody has solutions to these problems. <laughs> Certainly, the social democrats don't. They sure right? haven't solved them. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, and and I say this as somebody who's like half a social democrat by temperament. Um, it would be really nice if we elected a little social democratic government and they swooped in and you know did like New Deal stuff. I like New Deal stuff. I like WPA stuff as much as the next, uh, you know, um, person who. Uh, likes arts programs and infrastructure development. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, some infrastructure development, not others, right? <laughs> uh, the, the war, the war complex, we can do a little without. But you know, the the thing about it is, those big problems. You're right. It looks like there's not going to be like a big solution, uh, and that we're going to kind of have to cope with the consequences of of it, at least at first. Yeah. But even coping. This is this is kind of where I think the real kind of substance of of the, of the problem that libertarian socialists are, are facing right now, even coping, would require a greater level of organization than we have proven able to muster up to now. Not because the methods that we choose don't work, because in fact, as you point out, and as I actually really want to forcefully argue, and because I because we do in the end of the essay, like authoritarian methods don't work and can't work for a lot of the specific problems that we face. Uh, and history shows that very definitively. But um, there is also a, a, a serious way in which even kind of developing these like, you know, local, highly like, you know, rooted in a community, uh, like direct democratic institutions that control real resources, scaling that up, to the point where it actually could start replacing some of the the, the gaps left behind by uh, you know uh, states and capitalist firms that are too dysfunctional or too focused on their own goals to to to, to meet those needs, that would actually require us to be able, for example, to know how to build up a cooperative sector in a city. Or how to kind of like network the tenants unions that already exist, you know, across different, uh, you know, uh, regions, maybe even across like a continent, and then construct like the 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 way in which they self manage uh, each other, or or not each other, uh, self manage together, the you know the, the larger group, or it would require, and you know, there's a lot of people working on these problems, but sometimes there is a kind of like. You know, you'll you'll see this like obstacle in the road because, for example, like what do you do when the uh, it might not even be the, the the state properly speaking, right? It might be like a posse that's funded by some rich billionaire uh, asshole who's got like his uh, you know his notion that some people are just better than others and that you should institute the dictatorship of the tech bros, um, you know, and then 
that billionaire is funding a bunch of people who've got now like, you know, some industrial access to industrial infrastructure. And they don't like the fact that you're doing your DIY, like, you know, commune or whatever stuff in there on their turf. So how do you fight back against that? I mean, some of it you can fight back against at kind of our current level of capacity, but some of it does kind of require us to start thinking like, well, how do you, how do you build up financial independence? Like, how do you build up the kind of independence where it's like, if we get kicked off of the capitalist uh, uh, social media, for example, which is a great deal of what we use for fundraising, how, what kind of institutions could we create that would be like alternatives um, that are not like the, uh, the ones that the Nazis created when there was a purge of some of them that gab like highly dysfunctional, like, you know, it didn't even work for them. Uh, Not that, I mean, I'm happy about that, but like, you know, my point is like the same thing could happen to us. So, what would we do? Um, the like, there, there are all these kinds of things that are more little picture questions in a way, but they they scale up relatively quickly to at least like medium sized questions where we need this kind of like um, these these because because part of what it is is also that like it's not that these questions are impossible; it's that they're kind of neglected, and there's um there there's these uh the thinkers like uh christian williams who's an anarchist from the pacific northwest who wrote a uh, a pamphlet about this called wither anarchism and there was another pamphlet uh or uh, an essay in uh, counterpunch by uh, a person named gabriel kuhn who's an autonomous marxist basically like a libertarian marxist marxist anarchist type um called what happened to the anarchist century and both of those essays which i highly recommend that people read they ma- they make points basically like this you know like where where the 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 focus on how to construct those institutions and the nitty-gritty of how to do that has kind of receded from anarchism um as it's actually practiced uh in fa- like so there's like a rhetoric of revolutionary transformation but not always the attention to the nitty-gritty of how you actually can like build uh, resilient institutions that actually like carry that through, which, you know, a hundred years ago, people were talking about like the one big union and the general strike, but that's kind of like, um, well, a, it didn't work in exactly the way that they were thinking it would, even in the most successful revolutions, like in Spain and B, it was also like the, the there's, there's, there's a certain way in which our tensions are focused on other things. And it's not that those things are bad. It's just that like, there's been this kind of neglect of the question of large scale organization and how you do uh, coordination, like, you know, in order to tackle problems that are kind of like at the scale that, that I was talking about before. Um, and so basically the argument of the essay is that in the absence of that, like for the, the, the socialist movement that emerged after 2016 turned away from neo-anarchism thinking basically that it had no solutions, which I don't think is true either, but it's like, you know, or like rather it, it was true in the moment, but it doesn't have to be true, but it was true. But enough people thought that it was that they turned to like the social democratic route, but with the failure of Corbyn and Bernie, that kind of burned a lot of people out too. And a lot of what is seems like it's coming up now. And I'm wondering, I wonder what you guys think of this. Like a lot of the people that we see showing up in movement spaces who we see kind of like getting politically activated for the first time or whatever. A lot of those people are really interested in Leninism and specifically because I don't, I don't know how true that is. That's at least not, that's not that, that, that part's not true. At least 
at least at least here in Portland, that's very much not the case. Yeah, well, P- Portland, Portland, Portland is also yeah, got no its own other no other part of the country history. is like Portland yeah. other than maybe Eugene. Like, oh, okay, that's that's fair. That's like, fair. Yeah, well, yeah. Seattle Portland, a little bit too. Yeah, let's but like, be like fair. Portland, yeah. Portland is a big enough anarchist city that there are entire decade long like anar- like inter-anarchist wars that no one else in the u.s has ever heard that, of that, that are like true. the most important thing that's ever happened in portland <laughs> oh boy <laughs> welcome to the green red let, let me tell you chris you have just pissed off 60 people who could not explain to you who, if you gave them a year could not explain to you why they're angry <laughs> And I, I mean, I mean to, to be to be fair, like I, I I am an anarchist in Chicago. When the first time I introduced two of my Twitter mutuals together, they almost got in a fist fight. So like, you yeah, know. that makes that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, that's that completely scans. Even with like DSA stuff, I feel like there's there was at least was a trend a little bit to stay away from some of the more Russia communist kind of like types of aesthetics and and ideas because it is a turnoff for so many people. And it does, yeah, you know, no encourage us, and it does like encourage and forefront a form of authoritarianism that maybe is not great. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I've seen sort of both trends. Well, okay, so I think the last like year has been very different than I think the previous five. I've seen it on where, Twitter, but I don't know how much it expands into well, actual they, spaces. I, I think I think it's uh, like I, I saw a lot. So I mean, one of the things that happens yeah. in the DSA is is that the Leninists essentially took over the International Committee, and right. they they had this kind of division yeah, of labor scans. inside the DSA where like you have like a, you have a part of the DSA that's essentially a social democratic machine, and then you have the International Committee, which is which is the foreign policy wing, is essentially run by by uh, essentially run by by the Leninists, and I think. I don't know. I think I saw it there. The other thing I think I saw a lot of that that I've seen, even from people who are ordinarily not Stalinists, is what you know. Part of what I was talking about this is is the sort of like climate Stalinism or like climate yeah. Mao stuff. Like that that is a huge problem. That you know, I mean, I think I, mean, I think part of it also just has to do with the fact that people don't like. Okay, so like we we have actually existing uh, uh, climate Leninism. Like we have it. It's it, it's 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 China. Like the, the CCP changed. It's like literally changed yeah. its state ideology in in in, in the mid two thousand tens as as you know as an attempt to 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 deal, to deal with 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 pollution and climate change. It did nothing. Like they they yeah. they, they pressed every right. policy yeah. lever. It doesn't. It didn't. Like, it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they they did carbon markets. They did. They literally just banned coal in entire provinces, and it didn't work. They uh they they changed their country valuations. I I. I they the probably book shot Leviathan. people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like lays, yeah. Lay, lay, lays this out specifically with China to an excruciating degree. Yeah. Like it, like in detail, if you're really interested in this type of like climate left authoritarianism, they call it climate Mao in the book, but you can call it climate climate Leninism. You can call it whatever. But they they lay out how it could work and how use cases of it have not worked um, to a pretty, pretty intense degree. If you're interested in that, I would recommend reading the book climate Leviathan definitely influenced yeah. a large portion of the writing for this show. Yeah. And I mean, to your point, I don't think that this is the only trend I do. I agree with you that out of like the conjuncture of 2020, there was this, um, I, I, I think that a lot of the more like establishment reformist uh, aspects of the movement were discredited and that pushed people in different radical directions, like one of which very much is anarchism and libertarian socialism. I am seeing a lot more faces that are interested in in, in those questions for sure. Uh, and that's kind of counter to the trend that I was describing from the last like five years of like, you know, people becoming more disinterested because of the real or perceived lack of solutions. However, 
I do think that it's important, and this is kind of following on Chris's climate Leninism point, to understand that there's at least a counter trend where a lot of people are have not only moved away from libertarian socialism, have not only moved, but they've also moved away from democratic socialism. And if you follow that pattern, which is a pattern that I at least have seen within the DSA, within various trade unions, in a lot of among a lot of like intelligentsia type people, like journalists, professors, blah blah, you see a very common set of arguments. And I think it's very clear that as the century proceeds and the crises get worse and start killing like even larger numbers of people than they already are, we're going to see this argument a lot more. Um, yeah. And the, and the argument is something like this. I mean, I, there's a quote from a tweet. Uh, and, and, you know, one could argue that a tweet doesn't matter, uh, old but friends, old enemies. The, you are naive. If you think this is the tweet climate, ch- you are naive. If you think climate change can ever be solved without an authoritarian government at this point, <laughs> that's, and that's, that's the whole thing. So it's a, it's a nasty little tweet because it's ambiguous, right? It, yeah. it has this like shocking and scandalous effect. You know, we need authoritarianism to to, to solve climate change. It's scandalous, you know, epate le bourgeois, whatever. But then it's like, okay, wait, but what do you mean by authoritarian? Am I just being hysterical? Reacting well, it's, it's, it's like, what do you mean by, yeah. It's, it's, the, it's maybe, the same as saying you're naive if you think that um, climate change can be solved without uh, nuclear power or climate change can be solved without really big hammers. Like we have authoritarian governments, we have nuclear power, we have really big hammers and climate change has not be sol- been solved. Is yeah. it possible that any of those things might be a part of a theoretical yeah. solution that may happen someday? Right. Yes, but it hasn't. And there's like, if you're trying yeah. to say that authoritarian governments are better at dealing with climate change than the governments that currently dominate, number one, Hell of a lot of authoritarian governments are responsible for our current situation, yeah. our climate change. Number two, the Soviet Union, which I suspect most of these people see as a guiding light, horrible for the environment, turned the largest body of water in Eurasia into a poison lake. Yes, <laughs> like, right. Not, and, not, and not good at the environment, you know? And here's, here's what's interesting about the thing to me. The other thing that it's doing is kind of signaling that it's like, patently ridiculous to oppose this idea without specifying what the idea is like and uh, like in other words authoritarianism like but like i mean let's let's be blunt right what they're implying as a leninist is the one-party state the secret police press censorship and the command economy yeah so does that help you fight climate change that's actually an interesting and a kind of like you know distant five thousand foot view you know from the god's eye view or whatever like uh the, that's an interesting technical question. Do these yeah. institutions actually help or hinder a response? But we're not even having that conversation because instead it's this kind of underhanded attempt to get you to think that. So again, does a tweet matter? Well, I think a tweet matters if it comes from a member of the National Political Committee of the DSA. Because at least ostensibly of DSA is, which is the person who did that tweet, because at least ostensibly if DSA is a mass movement, as it purports to be uh, the mass movement of socialists mm-hmm. in the U.S. And, yeah, you know, and, and the <laughs> National Political Committee is ostensibly the leadership of the DSA, which I personally don't believe, but that's oh, certainly God. how they think yeah. of themselves. Um, then this indicates that the largest, most important socialist mass movement in the U.S., at least self-branded, uh, has people in its leadership who believe that the secret police might help in uh, addressing climate change. That's an interesting thing. And it's also very disturbing. And the thing is this, this person is not actually like 
important. He's a symptom because this is something that's happening across the board. And a more intellectually serious uh, version of this argument was put forward by the uh, Marxist intellectual and historian, um, a professor of human ecology called Andreas Malm. Uh, and people who are really into like Marx nerd stuff will probably have heard uh, yeah. Malm's name. Yeah. Because he's kind what, of a, what a very good of, book called Fossil Capital. Everything he's written after Fossil Capital is a disaster. <laughs> well, I, I like some of the sabotage ah, stuff. I, 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 uh, it's, it's, I mean, I, I it's, think, it's a little romantic yeah. and impractical. He wrote an ethical discourse instead of a thing about like the risk of eco-sabotage which is the actual important part of getting well and also the degree to which it can matter because eco-sabotage there's this idea on the left that like well what we need to do is be targeting fossil fuel infrastructure and again it's like what it's it's like what that dsa dude said like yeah that could theoretically be part of a thing that but also process if it's like nine dudes who do it and then they go to prison or get shot well, that doesn't really fix climate change. I think, I think yeah. uh, the book, the book, um, Ministry for the Future, really lays out all yes. of the all of, kind of like the best case scenario yes. for all these types of things and how they can work together to overall trend trend in this direction. Because yeah, that type of like eco sabotage in conjunction with other like political effects can be impactful on what things happen. But it, it, it's it not won't as necessarily as what, be. You know, it, it's it's not it's not as simple as we would like it to be. Because yeah, it's. It, it turns out a complex world has complex consequences and complex political yeah. well, actions. And, and 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 I think I think this is you know the, the trend that Malm is on the trend on the, you know there's there's a big environmental authoritarian like thing among among liberals. This is a huge thing in in, in political science. Was a big thing in, in ecological studies. That was essentially making a similar argument to to what Malm was making. That's like well okay you need some kind of air quotes vague authoritarianism to to deal to with climate change and you know it, it it's 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 basically this this attempt. There's like these people have have seen climate change, but they have no actual solution to it. So they wave their hands and pretend that like this like you know the state is going to descend from the sky and save them, and and it's not. And and I think that's you know I I I, I think I think we're we're sort of I don't know I I think I, as way to I guess kind of wrap this up because we fortunately are running out of time, but uh. You know, th- this like this exact moment, like like these like few weeks are this moment of incredible like rupture on the left, right? Because we we've we had we've had in some ways social democrats be discredited by the fact that like Corbyn and Sanders both lost, right? Their political project has been discredited. Um, we've had a series of sort of anarchist failures, but then you know, and, and in the last couple of weeks, right, it was all of the sort of big state like authoritarian people like tied themselves to a bunch of imperialists. And, you know, staked their whole entire politics off of them being the anti-imperialist class. And then, you know, the state who's like a bunch of their press people like literally work for, right? And who who they've been arguing like is is the counter-imperialist power just does imperialism. And so like, yeah, I I think we we have this moment where everything is in chaos in which we have to be the ones that, that, that have solutions or have, or have the tools to build them. And I think that's why that's why this project is important because that's that's something that we need in in this exact moment. Yeah, I, I think there's a tremendous value in being humble about seeking out solutions to these questions 
and not doing what so many do on the left and pretend that their tendency has an absolute answer because all we have is theories. And the reason I know that yeah. to a point of certainty is that no one has solved any of these problems yet. Right, um, yeah, absolutely. And and so there is a, a tremendous degree of humility that people need to have in terms of like, all right, well, we are attempting to arrive at the at conclusions that can lead us to a better world as opposed to we are trying to force through this thing that we know will work. Um because you don't, you know, if you're a Marxist Leninist and you think that we need climate Mao, you don't know that that will work because it hasn't yet. And if you're an anarchist who thinks the solution is bombing as many oil refineries as you possibly can, well, you don't know that you're ever going to get enough people on board for that to mean anything. Um, and I think that there's a the the conversations that we need to be having. I think it's it's important to see them as conversations as opposed to polemics aimed at just getting people in line behind this shining vision of a of a clear set of steps. Um, it's important to envision the end goal. I say that a lot. You know, we need to be looking and and accepting the possibility of a better future, but it's important not to be dogmatic about the road to get there because nobody nobody really has a clear idea of what that looks like. Yeah. So the 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 piece ends up and if you want to see the ending of it it'll it'll be up in um in sometime in the next couple of weeks but the the basic gist of where it goes is precisely to the practical question right instead of like making these like polemical uh arguments that are rooted more in like kind of like what tribe you've decided to identify with within the broad family of socialism than in like actually trying to like solve problems for the people around you right or help uh contribute to the solutions like it's actually we what we want to ask is like if we have like the giant ecological crisis uh how do you how do you actually do it is it by trying to force people from the top down to do it as um Andreas mom kind of draws on the failed uh policies of war communism as an inspiration uh for that or is it potentially by having like democ democratized institutions that incentivize people with carrots instead of sticks like Naomi Klein uh, basically uncovered a lot of her journalism and this changes everything. So this is kind of like the, 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 the debate that we have to start having in order to be able to together formulate these kinds of solutions. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for, for us today. Um, what do we, what do we, we, we you guys, you guys got a, got a, got a plug you want to throw up? throw up before we roll out yeah uh if if you want to follow us at uh at strange underscore matters um on twitter um we also have uh, facebook and you can uh, read our articles uh at strange matters dot co-op uh which is our website uh and if anything that you read there that you've heard here inspires you at all please consider donating we're going to be in the next month raising money uh for for the magazine and we want to pay our writers above uh, market rate because we think market rates too low so but in order to actually do that and none of the money's going to the editors uh, from the fundraisers so if 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 we're going to be able to do that we got to meet our uh, fundraising target all right well support them and um you know figure out how to save the world it's it's up to you and i'm speaking to exactly one person right now and no one else but i'm, I'm not going to be more specific
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart and putting them back together again. And today we're doing one of our, I guess, increasingly less rare, but still sort of uncommon putting things back together again episodes. And with me today is Ted Min from Amazonians United uh, to talk about different kinds of union union workers organizing um, and the work that y'all have been doing. So, Ted, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So... All right. One of the things that, that I wanted to talk about right off the bat is that Amazonians United is running a very, very different kind of organization than a lot of the union efforts that we've talked about on the show and a lot of the sort of like, I guess, classical or sort of business union model stuff that that, you know, we've 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 we, you know, then then what you see in the press and then also that we've been covering. So I wanted to start off by asking you about solidarity unionism and how it sort of differs from other kinds of union organizations and sort of campaigns? Sure. I think it's pretty simple, actually. I think solidarity unionism is workers who believe in ourselves. And by that, I mean, it's workers recognizing that we don't need someone to save us. Um, when 
because we are the ones doing the work. We know how to run our workplaces. We know how to uh, do it best. And we also deserve uh, the, 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 the wealth that we produce. And so um, solidarity unionism to me is uh, building organization with each other where the fabric of our organization is our relationship and our uh, solidarity as coworkers engaging in struggle against um, bosses, managers, owners, um, everyone that's that's telling us what to do while uh, taking the lion's share of the wealth that we create. Um, and it's by uniting, coming together around issues that we care about, taking direct action in the workplace, um, building our confidence and our strength and our consciousness um, and our organization that to me is solidarity unionism. Um, it is distinctly different from business unionism, which is the dominant form, mainstream unionism, or, you know, legalistic unionism, whatever you want to call it. Um, that model that has been failing for several decades um, actually is predicated on a deep distrust of workers. Uh, the disbelief that workers can organize ourselves, run our own workplaces, represent ourselves, defend ourselves and each other. Um, and in business union, and I mean, you know, you, you, <laughs> you see the ads when they're posting uh, for union staff job. Come lead these workers. Come, come join this union and lead these yeah. workers. <laughs> You're not even a worker in the workplace. How are you going to lead someone in there? Yeah. You know, you're you're a lawyer. You're uh, you know, you have a different professional expertise. You're not moving the packages with us from inside, with from within the uh, the, the warehouse. And so, um, yeah, I think that's that's the main difference to me of the model. Do you are you a worker? Do you believe in workers? Do you trust and have faith that workers, we ourselves, can build our own organization, lead ourselves, um, and uh, and win. Or do you think workers need to be led, need to be represented, need to be told what to do, um, need to pay you to go and save them? Um, and uh, yeah, I uh, I believe in workers, so I'm a, I'm a solidarity unionist. Yeah, and, and I think we were talking a bit before the show about this, and I think there's there's a lot of aspects about this that are, I think, very powerful in you know, in, 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 in sectors of the economy that haven't been unionized and haven't, or unions have retreated from or people who were never sort of organized in, in, to begin with. And I think that's, you know, something that there's, 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 there's this problem that happens like with, with a lot of unions where, you know, you, you, you get, you get this sort of bureaucratic structure that builds up and the bureaucratic structure that builds up like doesn't have doesn't necessarily have the same interests as the people in the union, and that's a real problem. And you get these entrenched, like you know, you, you can get these entrenched caucuses, you control unions, and you get this this sort of proliferation of of these people. And and I think this this was part of why a lot of the sort of the the anti union 
techniques that you saw in like the sort of anti-union purges in the eighties. I mean, you, you've been seeing them for a while, but like why they started working in the eighties was that like, you know, when, 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 when someone like starts ranting about union bureaucrats, right? Like there, there actually, like there actually was a divide there. Like there, there, there was a sort of like, I guess like, like there, there, there was a sort of like a, 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 a kind of fundamental class difference, which I, I think has a lot. I mean, it also has a lot to do with, you know, it, when, when you get into your sort of like, more more revolutionary context that that has to do with why a lot of unions when you know france is infamous for this right like france has had these giant like communist trade unions and every time a revolution started the trade union just like sits there and does nothing and yeah and you have to sort of ask yourself like okay so why is this happening and i think yeah like solidarity unionism it, it has it has a lot of answers to this sort of i, I guess you could call it like there, there's there's a, there's a sort of like right-wing critique of unions that has to do with like, well, okay, so we don't want workers to organize. We don't want them to have collective power at all. But then there's also, you know, but but it, the it, the reason that it works in a lot of cases is because it's able to tap into a sort of like in, in into these structural problems that a lot of unions have. And and I think so my my understanding of of how y'all's organizing has been going, and correct me if I'm wrong, that I've been interested in is that like un, un, unlike a lot of other campaigns that you've seen. I mean, even specifically with Amazon, but like a lot of other, the, the sort of the, the campaigns that are getting a lot of press, like you're not actually, like your goal isn't to just get like recognition as a collective bargaining unit. Right. That's another key part of our key difference between solidarity unionism and business unionism. Um, in business unionism, you're, you're what defines you as a union is whether you are legally recognized by the state by the NLRB, um, by the appointed government body. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is the point at which the folks in these organizations, like, are we a union or are we not? Okay. Let's, let's do an election. Let's follow all these rules that by the way, were designed to demobilize us uh, you yeah. know, a century ago, but uh, let's follow all these rules. Let's try to fight in the courts uh, to be recognized as a union. And then once we're a union, then we can fight for a legal contract that has benefited a lot of people in different ways. I'm not, you know what I mean? Like, it, but that approach is different than solidarity unionism where it's like, we know our power is in the workplace on the shop floor where our power is based on our unity and numbers as coworkers. We see this when, we walk out and within a month, they give us a raise. How long would it have taken to get a raise if we went for an LRB election? Yeah, it's like, it could be years How and many years. years? I mean, what, yeah. what organization are we even building in that way? And so um, our, instead of seeking legal recognition and waging our uh, 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 struggle against bosses in the courts, we are choosing to wage, uh, engage in struggle in the shop floor where we are the experts, where we have the power, where we have the organization, where we are doing the work, where that is our home turf. Um, we have more power there. Like It makes more sense to build power where we have power, not in the institutions that were specifically designed to disempower us and give large employers the upper hand. Um, all the different ways that they can manipulate how uh, uh, the votes happen, what is considered part of the, uh, uh, the voting unit, um, the contract negotiation process. I mean, 
all of these legal hurdles, I mean, <laughs> for the vast majority of workers, you'll need lawyers to be even understand how to engage yeah. in that world. That's not our world. It was not built for us to be in. It was built to control us. And so um, it just doesn't make logical sense to try to wage our struggle in that arena. Um, we should be waging it in the places that we work. And so um, that, yeah, that's, I think another core um, principle, solidarity unionism, like build power where we have it. Um, and that's the shot floor. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's something that I've seen like in, like when I was in college, there, there was a big grad student union uh, organization campaign and it kind of, the, they, they had this huge problem, which was that, okay, well they, they were trying to do, they were trying to get a national labor relations board, like vote under Trump, but they couldn't do it because if, you know, because, because the national labor relations board was controlled by just like the, even, even by national labor relations board standards, like, like just unbelievably anti-union, like viscerally anti-worker forces. It was like, well, if if we try to get a vote, like there's a chance they could just, you know, like literally destroy the right, like destroy the organizing rights of all grad students in the country. And yeah, and you get you get they did that with the Nissan election or something like that. Yeah, yeah, indefinitely delayed it. Yeah, and it's and it's you know yeah I think this this is a trap that like a lot of people even even people who are really highly organized like get stuck in where you know and and like like eventually uh, the grad students just like essentially just started doing walkouts because that was, you know, that, that was the thing they could do when they started doing their own strikes, even though they weren't like legally recognized because that was the thing that you could do to, you know, actually fight in a terrain that wasn't just inherently rigged against you. So, okay. So you've, 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 you've decided uh, to, to take, to take a fight in the workplace, like on the shop floor where, where you're, where you're at your strongest. What does that actually look like in, in terms of actions, in terms of organization? Yeah, honestly, I think it's simpler and more rudimentary um, than one might think or that you might read about in, you know, an academic article or something analyzing. I think it comes down to, comes down to building community, comes down to building culture and the principles of the community and culture that you build together with your coworkers is one where we value ourselves and each other. We respect ourselves and each other. And that means that we fight for what is fair in the workplace. That means that we maintain integrity. Anytime a uh, boss disrespects one of us, we need to confront it. We, We need to address it. Uh, if not immediately, uh, soon after in numbers. Um, It means if we're getting overworked and underpaid, then we need to strategize and figure out how do we we compel the employer to stop overworking and underpaying us? How do we hit them in a place that they are forced to respect? And um, as it goes... In the world we are today, it's always the numbers, it's always the money, it's always the profit. So um, what that means on the day-to-day, I mean, Amazon warehouses are a very isolating place. Um, Amazon has basically uh, gigified warehouse work. 
you know, it's like the Uber for warehouse where you can pick up shifts, you can, you know, extra shifts, you can take uh, uh, furlough days, you know, <laughs> we call them VTOs. Um, many warehouses, like you're, you'll work a 10, 12 hour shift and you're for that entire time, you're near one or two people max because we're spaced out and it's loud and there's machinery and you're packing boxes. And, and so um, on top of that, you know, the everyday dehumanizing, it's also um, you're pushed to work faster and faster. Um, it's difficult to have, you know, <laughs> deep human interaction when you're busting your ass moving, you know, 30 to 45 pound packages as quickly as you can. Um, and so the, the, the day-to-day of building and fighting in the workplace, building community means, uh, for example, every week uh, we have a potluck during lunch, bring coworkers together, new coworkers that, you know, someone could start last week. There's something that we hear a lot, you know, part of the challenge, it's the turnover is so high. How yeah. can you possibly organize? Yeah. Turnover was so high. Um, that is a specific weapon that bosses use against us. High turnover means what? It means we frequently have new coworkers, harder to build relationship and organization. Yep. It means that the job feels more precarious. So people are always uh, uh, afraid that we'll lose our job. Uh, you know, we could get fired. We could, uh, they could change uh, staffing numbers. They could close warehouses. It create, you know, as a tool, high turnover, they just, they churn through workers. Okay. Who, who's willing to do the most work for the lowest pay yep. and sacrifice the most of their body. Okay. If, if you can't handle it, then you quit. If you can, then you stay in here. Okay. Let's find the workers in society that are most able to, you know, yep. produce the most of it, so on and so forth. And so, uh, basic things, you know, having every day, uh, sometimes it's just like talking with your coworkers is something that is that they try to, keep you from doing in the workplace and by engaging conversation you're already resisting that isolation already resisting um bosses trying to just control everything keep everyone divided so you know weekly pot lunches um having meetings inside or outside of the workplace coming together what are the issues that we care about um how do we bring, how do we build more unity around these issues that we know many people care about? Is it doing a petition? People sign on together. Are we delivering the petition in a group? Um, if the management uh, doesn't respond, or doesn't give us a reasonable response, uh, how do we escalate? Do we need to walk out? Do we need to take other action? Um, anytime we see a manager disres- disrespecting a coworker, um, how do we you know, post up next to them, pull out a notepad, start taking notes, ask questions. Um, we're a witness, you know, how do we defend each other in all of these basic ways? How are we addressing um, and being honest with ourselves and each other of uh, just the depth of disrespect when they're waiting for us outside of the bathrooms to write us up for time off tasks, when they're telling us to work faster, when, you know, we're already on a 10 hour shift, we're on hour 10 of the 10 hour shift. They sent a bunch of people home and are forcing us to finish all the work for a small number of people. Do we continue putting up with it or do we immediately walk out or do we talk with our coworkers about what we want to do? Just being mindful of being honest about what, how we are being treated, what is fair, what is not, and taking the necessary action to uh, uh, demand the, the fairness, the respect that each of us deserve. I think like, that's what the workplace struggle looks like. Um, 
I don't, yeah. And I think it comes down to building that community um, with each other and then building the culture of not putting up with bullshit, defending each other, looking out for each other. Um, there's a them, there's an us. Um, make sure you know what side you're on. Um, and, you know, I think that's the, that's the foundation of it. Yeah, I think the, the the aspect especially of culture building is really interesting to me because I think that's something that's not really talked about much with 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 organizing efforts in both I mean, because you know a, a lot of like a, a lot of what gets discussed with you know it's, it's, especially in, in academic circles when 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 you're when you're just you know when 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 you have people writing about union organizing and when even when sort of like other union organizers are writing about. Uh, Unions is that yeah you don't hear much about the cultural aspects and you don't hear much about just resisting the the actual like psychological degradation that you get and that strikes me I think also as as yeah as as you've been saying strikes me something that's that's very important to not discuss enough as I mean both as just something that that is a goal in itself like not having this sort of you know not not having the just sort of horrible demeaning and abusive sort of tyranny of the bosses just like existing as this kind of like normal force and but then also like yeah that that it that's actually something that that is really important for anyone who's who's thinking about organizing is you know getting getting people getting people to organize around just like how or getting getting people to organize around just this the sort of like the psychological degradation, like I I th- I think is really important because otherwise you know you 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 get you can get you can just get these cultures where, like I mean I, I remember I had a job where I was in like we had a union but like it didn't I mean I, so I I was a, I was a temp worker so I wasn't in the union but like they they had a union and it just sort of didn't do anything and no one. <laughs> Like, and, you know, and this this was a real source of sort of right wing resentment because the union just didn't do anything, and then, you know, everyone's getting treated terribly, like by by the bosses and by sort of upper management, and no one. But it never even like it never really like just on a culture level, it never occurred to them to sort of like use the union for that because that's not really what the union was there for. It was just a sort of like it was just this thing that existed, and like occasionally when contracts came up, it, it would appear. And I guess on, on on that note, one of the things I was also wondering is what sort of so for 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 people who are who are interested in their own workplaces in starting doing this kind of organizing and starting to sort of, I mean, just fight back against their bosses in ways that don't you know either because they don't want to or because they literally can't, which I think is 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 true of a lot of people like who who want to organize outside of the business union model. How how do you, how did you all? start organizing like this and what what sort of immediate lessons do you think people should should take away and should sort of bring in bring into their own organizing in the workplace yeah um i think at the base of it is that um i guess i mentioned something like this earlier but that we we can organize ourselves um we can you know, if you're talking, if you have two coworkers that you're friends with and um, you say like, hey, let's meet up and talk about what's going on at work, you're starting to organize, you know? Um, and I think part of 
part of the damage, part of the harm that business unionism has done, and also just, I don't know, hierarchical organizing, um, Kalinsky and organizing. um, I think they're all part of a, a sort of connected school of thought where it's like, organizing and you know building a union is something that like you need to be like professionals to or you know you they're experts at it um yeah, they're experts yeah. and then if you're not an expert then you need to consult an expert to figure out how to do it um and i think that's bullshit i think it's uh if you're a worker then uh you can be a union organizer <laughs> if you're a worker and you talk with you know, another worker about what's going on in your workplace. Like you're already starting to organize. Um, like I said earlier, if you're calling a meeting, if you're, you know, and, and workers do this all the time, uh, confronting management about disrespect, you know, I think it's very much more frequently on an individual basis, but it's the matter of like connecting your issue with a couple other coworkers and then figure out, okay, well, um, what, what's our next step? Well, we need more numbers. How do we, you know, how do we build more numbers? Uh, if each of us can invite one more person, that's six people. If, uh, you know, if the six of us can are starting a petition, we could probably get, you know, signatures of 50 or 60, you know, like it's, it's step by step and saying, if we want to build organization, we can do it from the bottom up. We can start it. Um, and we can figure this out. I mean, every, even within the same company, even within the same company in the same city there, you know, I work at um, a delivery station uh, in Gage Park, other delivery stations in the city of Chicago have a completely different culture, you know, uh, the, the neighborhood that it's in, yep. the, uh, the workers that are the bosses, you know, and so even in the same company, the same type of workplace in the same city, it's going to be a different story for how that workplace is going to, you know, get united, come together, um, figure things out, build organization. And it's just anyone there that is thinking about that, that, that kind of just begins the process of putting together the basics. All right. We need to start building up some numbers. We need to start having, you know, addressing some issues that, people care about. And there's always, I mean, there's always the, you know, overworked and underpaid and that's yeah. going to exist everywhere. And you can yeah. always go after those issues, but frequently there's smaller ones. Like our first issue was a water petition uh, or, 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 or at, was access to water. Um, and this is how we started as an organization. Um, basically they were taking away bottled water. They said we were leaving around too much garbage. They're saying bottled water is only there for the summer. And now that's not the summer that whatever they're trying to save a few dollars a day on bottled water to make us, you know, work without it. Um, and we said, that's fucked up. We're doing warehouse work. Like this is hard manual labor and it's hot in here. We need that bottle of water. It's, you know, not just the, uh, broken unfiltered fountain across the warehouse that you can't even get to while you're working. Um, and so, uh, just a few of us that were talking at break, it's like, okay, well, there's six of us here. Well, we're kind of, you know, this is the, <laughs> this is the break room at work. They're like managers walking around their cameras in here. Like let's meet outside uh, and figure this out. Um, so, you know, we, we met at a, at a Krispy Kreme down on like 93rd 
Um, and uh, we just basically said like, well, how are we going to get this water? We've been asking management, uh, you know, they've given us the same reasons. We need to do something bigger that, that they can't ignore. Um, how about a petition? And so we just drafted it. The six of us, we drafted it. We went around, we got 150 signatures, I think, wow. from our coworkers of just like basic demands. We need bottled water stocked every day. They need to be, you know, filters need to be clean. We need to get a, be able to uh, take a break to get this water. Um, and we delivered uh, 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 the, the, the 150 signatures to management. Um, I think it was within 30 or 40 minutes. They drove to a grocery store, bought, you know, went to the nearest Pete's, bought every uh, case of bottle water they have, brought it and passed it out to everyone. We're like, oh, okay. Like that was, you know, people were like, that's just, hey, we got to do a petition for this thing. We got to do, yeah. you know what, this thing, <laughs> we should probably, it, it was that, I don't want to say easy because it's definitely not easy to like, yeah, but yeah the steps, the step-by-step of like, how do you begin? How do you get something started? How do you start building some unity? Um, These are steps that we have taken. These are, you know, what we think is, can be applicable um, with everyone's own kind of personal tweaks based on, you know, your own workplace um, to start getting something going for more coworkers to start realizing, oh yeah, like we should be in more control of what's happening around here because we're the ones that are doing all the work. Yep, we're the yep. ones that are suffering the most from it. I mean, our bodies getting ground down from doing it. And so, um, yeah, I think that, I think I loop back to a previous question too, but like how we started, how you engage in the struggle and just like what that looks like for, for building building something up. From nothing to something like that's what yeah. that's what we you know what I mean that's what we did yeah from, from what I've seen y'all have been extremely effective like at at, at, at getting management to recognize but essentially getting them to like accede to your demands because like this 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 kind of organizing like solidarity union what I'm trying to say is solidarity unionism works like it's not like <laughs> like and, and you know and yeah it's it's a thing I think one of one of the things you're talking about is like yeah it's like when like when you win even on something fairly small right and you you can show people that this works and that like you know if 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 you actually come together on something you can force management to do stuff like I think that also become becomes an important sort of like I don't know if catalyst is the right word, but it, it becomes, it become, becomes an yeah. engine that like feeds itself. Definitely. I mean, especially for a big company like Amazon, like I think the most common perspective, at least at the start is like, this is such a big company. Like what could we possibly do? They have a thousand warehouses. Like what, you know, they could choose to close one and open another one. You know, they do this or, they could suddenly, you know, and with two weeks notice, like change the schedule from an evening time to an overnight time, which is what they did to us, basically. Um, what can we possibly do? And so, it, you know, but I think it's like the moment <laughs> it's like there's a on a cliff or a, a, what do you call it? Like the water should a point like the moment you kind of take that first collective action and then get what you want. Um, it's like, oh, wait, it's not as like within this space, like we can actually make our lives a lot better yeah. pretty quickly if yeah. we just come together and do it ourselves and recognize the power that we have. Um, and 
I think it's like that's a, one of the reasons why it works so well is because it is different from the mainstream approach, which um, bosses and these companies understand very well and can easily maneuver around such as, oh, if we do, if, if one of our managers does something wrong, uh, what will happen next is we'll receive, our, one of our lawyers will receive a grievance from one of their representative lawyers and, you know, this business union will have this many months to respond and then we can do this and then, you know, uh, we'll do this paperwork and have this legal back and forth and then uh, maybe we'll address this issue six to 12 months down the line, um, no disruption, you know, nothing to worry about, um, let the bosses run amok and we'll get a six to 12 month head start to, you know, get maybe get a slap on the wrist and a fix wherever you need to or pay a small fine. Um, as opposed to that, that's business unionism, like as opposed to solidarity unionism, where it's like they just disrespected us in a way that like we're not trying to put up with. Like we are hurting. Yeah. We can't even finish this shift without hurting ourselves more. We're just going to group up and walk out right now. Um, they're going to figure out they're going to have to figure out how to get the rest of these packages out without us. Um, and when we come back tomorrow uh we'll see we'll see if they want to keep treating us the same way um and so it's like to me you know we we've had basic basic management confrontations where either immediately uh you know they were understaffing and we grouped up rolled into the office just like with seven of us not even like the whole shift um seven out of 50 people rolled in the office said you have too few people on the line so you need an add extra person we've been asking you haven't um we've folded our arms Within five minutes, they sent an extra person over there. They're working the rest of the shift. Um, in the in the business union approach, like I, I don't even know, like how you file a you know understaffing grievance. Like, what are the details? How does that happen? Does a union representative have to be contacted and then negotiate in some way? Um, fuck that! Like, let's just address this right now and fix it. Um, I don't want to wait for some outside activity. Let's just improve our working conditions right now by confronting addressing it um i think it just you know that's something that um the bosses are less uh, it, it's less predictable for them it's less in their control it's less in their wheelhouse um and i think that's a key reason why it, it works better yeah and i think one of one of the things the thing this reminds me of is it reminds me of the kind of stuff that unions used to do when they were strong like it reminds me of like yeah you're you're like CIO like sit down strike right it's like well okay if if the manager does something we didn't we don't like someone blows a whistle everyone sits down and like it's like it's that that kind of not just sort of like waiting to go through the legal channels but just just like immediately taking action is like it's it's something that it's like it's something that worked and it's you know like that that's that's the kind of stuff that like built the built the original like labor movement and and it's really interesting to me that like cuz cuz i think there's a lot of like I think a lot of people look back at that era sort of like nostalgically and go like, well, okay, if unions were stronger, we could do this. But like, that's not really true. You you can actually just like, like you, you can do the same things that like, you know, your like 1930s CIO was doing like, and, and, and if, you know, and you, you don't, you don't need the kind of institutional backing that, that those people had. If, if like, if, if you're organized enough in, in your, in your specific location, I, I think that's a really interesting I don't know. I'm curious if you agree with this. It seems like it's sort of interesting lesson about like what happened to the labor movement where like the, 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 the more you, the more you get into this sort of like 
okay, well, the, the, the union is now two lawyers sitting down with each other, right? The, the, what, what you're doing basically is like, – I mean, this, this, is, this is explicitly what the National Labor Relations Act was, right? Like it was an attempt to get labor, labor and capital to sit down at the table and stop fighting so that they could like – you know, it was basically so that production could go on. And like some, some, sometimes that, that, you know, sometimes I favor the union, right? Sometimes you'd have the president be like, like the actual, like the U.S. president would be like, okay, you come, you like steel company, you have to like give workers the, what, what they're asking for because our steel production shut down, right? But like, you know, the, 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 the problem with that is that it's based on like, it, it's based on at all costs trying to sort of preserve like, it's based on all costs, like trying to preserve the labor peace. And, you know, I mean, there, there's reasons for that too. Like, yeah, like I'm not going to like, like obviously there's, there's anytime you take a direct action, there's a risk. And yeah, like I'm not going to like, you know, I'm not going to be like, like it's it's hard to be really mad at people who don't want to go on strike because they don't like, because the, the you know, how, how am I going to feed my family? Well, et cetera, et cetera. But like, you know, bring like have, having that kind of militancy in, in the workplace, just, you know, without, without any kind of formal recognition, I think is an extremely powerful tactic and is, I mean, literally how the original labor movement like got built. It's difficult though. And it can be scary, yeah, yeah. you know, and it's like, yeah. I think you, you posed kind of the question or, 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 or kind of questioning the idea, like, where did how did the labor movement get to where it's at if the origins were more conscious um, in the ways that you've been describing? Um, I think that um, I mean it's it's definitely you know the risk is always there. You're yeah. always confronting the power. I mean, in the workplace, when it comes down to it, like obviously the power dynamics shift and it's more complex than, you know, bosses have more power than workers unless workers organize and workers have more power than bosses. That is true. And also, for example, on the day to day, you know, the boss can fire anyone and then you're, you know, <laughs> however you, you end up dealing with it, uh, you know, you could be out anywhere between two or 20 paychecks until something is resolved yeah. legally yeah. Um, or even through direct action. You know, there's obviously very directly uh, oppressive power dynamic there. Um, and I think that um, to speak truth to power, to directly confront it, um, of course it's frightening. I mean, I, I would be lying if, it, you know, like I'm, 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 you know, talking on this, on this podcast about doing this and yeah, we're doing this. We're like, I, you know, I'm not going to pretend that like when we grew, even when we were in a 40 person mass, you know, confronting management, addressing we have everyone together. It's still like, you know, there's, there's, there's still this power dynamic here and we're, yep. we're, we're punching yep. up. Like it's a punch, but like it, we're punching up to someone that's like a bigger, heavier, uh, 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 adversary and so it's like they could swing back too like you kind of got to be ready to and so um, I think that what I'm describing on a kind of like face-to-face interpersonal that moment in the workplace I think on a broader scale also exists where it's like waging an extended you know 
organizing struggle to be fighting this fight millions of times in many different ways and then continually trying to bring people together you know people move on because everything that's happening in life they got evicted from their place so they had to move to a different place far away okay suddenly they had to leave the job and they were someone that was you know contributing a lot to the organizing yeah. something happened someone has a family member that, uh you know that they need to spend a little bit more time with um everything that's happening everything that's making you know reducing our time as working people to take care of ourselves and each other like all of this we're fighting against all of this and um there are definitely ups and downs there are definitely times where it's like dang like we're you know and the, it, it seems like at times uh, uh all of the struggles in life like it, it's like you take like two steps forward and then two steps backwards yeah and like how yeah. do we even get to and so you know there's definitely a difficult reality permeating everything you know all of the 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 organizing wins the the advance that we're talking about um we need to be fully honest about that and also recognize that there's still like nothing more <laughs> there's like nothing more beautiful powerful there, there's no there's nothing that feels better than the, the that moment when you when the power dynamic was like this and you pulled something off and it's like yeah you know yeah. it's like oh like you you just did what we wanted you know and and more and then now like you're being real careful with us like oh, we we change things here like our lives are better concretely um and we made it happen and uh you know i think those are like celebrating the wins and like <laughs> taking joy not always thinking so far okay we got more to go we got yeah there always there's always more that um we can and have to be building and let's make sure that we're taking the time to recognize um and celebrate each of the steps that we are um advancing so that you know we we don't get lost in you know assuming <laughs> in the cycle of like seeking uh permanent infinite growth and organizing yeah, yeah. and then being constantly stressed out about it rather than like taking those breathers taking those moments okay like let's take this in stride let's do this sustainably let's not burn out um you know i think that's all part of figuring out how to how to how to make it happen yeah and i think that's that's an important i think that that's an important thing to understand with any kind of organizing which is that like yeah if 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 you like if 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 there's never sort of a moment in which you're reflecting on or sort of or just celebrating like the 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 goals that you've actually accomplished right you're just going to sort of be endlessly bashing your head against a wall and you know then this is this is like yeah I mean this is this is sort of a burnout machine this is a an, a way that you know it's something that also just sort of feeds despair which is that yeah like you know like yeah okay your your victory is a small victory but it 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 is a real one and that's that's something that even in the face of sort of like the cyclopean horror of like just the world that we're living in like no your your small victories do lead up to bigger ones and yeah and it, you know and getting people to lose sight of that is a like it's, it's a major way the system is held together by just sort of like manufacturing hopelessness even when there 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 are reasons for hope and there are reasons to sort of look at what you've done and go hey we we won this thing 
Yeah, and I think that's a, I guess, unexpectedly cheery for this show uh, note to end on. Uh, do you have anything else? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think we touched on a lot. Um, I guess I have a, a usual pitch or some version of it. Um, but I think um, maybe something to bring together different elements that we touched on and uh, bring in some of the cheery hopefulness and also put out some encouragement too. I think now is a time where there's a whole lot of uncertainty and on, uh, you know, definitely in a global week to week or year to year scale, but also on an individual level, I think a lot of individuals right now, um, likely those that are listening, um, that, that end up listening to this or um, those that are like seeing what's happening around the world. It's like, what is my role in all of this? Like, what am I trying to do? And different people are joining different organizations and, and, and trying to figure out um, how they should be living their lives, what the what principles they should be living out, how they should be applying themselves to, for example, um, combat and dismantle, um, you know, uh, capitalism and 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 uh, you know the prison industrial complex and uh reverse climate destruction and and fight fascism and you know everything all of the ex- existential threats that we face like what you know what is my role and i think um if if you at all have the capacity and curiosity um, to engage in some of this deep work yourself for building community relationships, culture among, um, you know, just with workers, build, building your own organization, building your own acts of resistance, building your own forms of, 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 you know, own forms of, of reclaiming your time and, and, and minds and bodies and, build something beautiful that can, you know, be part of a broader movement that, that, you know, lifts up working people that kind of gets back what we are building and what we, what we deserve. Um, you know, think about, think about the logistics industry, think about warehouse work, yep. um, think about joining in. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's hard work. It's hard manual labor. It's hard mental and emotional work. Um, but, uh, I think this is the future of what the winning, fighting, uh, successful labor movement, um, will need. Um, and I think many people engaging in building more genuine, more worker focused, worker centered, worker run, uh, solidarity unions of our own. Uh, democratic, horizontal, bottom up. Um, I think building this way and connecting with each other, I think this is the way forward. I think this is the examples that we need. We need more people engaging in this work. We need more uh, more of that attention, energy, and focus. Like how do we build the real stuff um, that's going to be the, the, the powerful organizational influence to transform society and, and and avert these forms of extinction and continued uh, extraction, exploitation, oppression of all of us. Uh, 
join us, join, yeah. <laughs> join the struggle, uh, get, get some of these jobs, talk to your coworkers, build something. Uh, it's that it's really that simple. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's my, that's my yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everyday pitch. Um, so if, if people want to find Amazonians United specifically, uh, where, where, where can they find y'all? Um, so in Chicago, so Amazonians United Chicagoland, um, is our name. We have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter. Um, those are probably where we're most active. Um, and where you can follow and get into contact with us, tweet at us, mess, you know, message us on Facebook. Um, if, if you're really so inclined, um, you can email us at a you chicagoland at gmail.com um but otherwise yeah just look up you know follow our social media you'll see what what we post occasionally about what's going on um and uh you know feel free to reach out get into contact ask any questions you might have um and you know let's connect let's build community yeah it is that's that's au chicago land at au chicago land on uh twitter by the way yeah yeah um yeah sweet uh Ted, thank you. Thank you so thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it was really great. Um yeah, if you want to find us at uh, you can find us at uh Happen Here Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Coolzone Media in the same places. Um yeah, go 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 organize with your coworkers. Go do cool <laughs> things. Go make the world a better place. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 for sure. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Arg, arg, me arties. This is me doing a pirate voice, which is kind of a, a bad, a bad Irish voice. That's enough, that's enough of that. Um, hi, welcome to Could Happen Here, the show where we talk about things that could possibly happen and or are happening. And go yahar fiddly d. I'm Garrison. Uh, welcome to this uh, tech-centric episode. This is very exciting. Uh, with me is uh, Chris to help us discuss uh libraries and piracy arg permanently pirate brained and and uh paywalls and all this all this fun stuff so yeah we're talking about kind of free access to information and uh i don't know like i really like libraries and i think a library based economy would be pretty cool yeah you know li- libraries for everything uh food libraries you you take food you know deposit compost um it's a ne- decent 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 system Got the tool libraries, so you can get, you know, your angle grinders for taking apart federal fences. You can get your, you know, soldering irons for building your FGC9s. You know, all all of all of the basic stuff. And I guess book libraries are cool too. Um, but we already have those, and we're gonna be we're gonna be talking about them a little bit. We're gonna be having a discussion on paywalls, piracy, arg, and uh, and how access to information is actually good, um, contrary to what many people want to tell you. <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, as uh, as the internet uh, uh, became easier to access and the information flow accelerated, there's been kind of questions and speculation on how physical book libraries will fit into our increasingly digital media landscape. Now, it's important to mention that the library is also one of the main ways for lower income people to access the internet yep. um, with their you know collection of free to use computers as well as, you know, a decent Wi-Fi connection. Um, and many, many libraries also are expanding their scope to include stuff like makerspaces, as well as, you know, their printers and standard kind of office supplies. So libraries are already kind of beyond just places to get printed media. But of course, that is that is kind of their one of, that has been their main their main premise. But, you know, they've been they've been including stuff regarding ebooks computer use wi-fi access all the stuff's been a part of libraries for like the past like 20 30 years um yeah like it's it's not it's not it's not it's not it's not a new thing but i think when when people think of libraries we just think of books or newspapers and stuff but it is it is definitely more than that because yeah obviously physical libraries are mostly known for printed materials and because we'll be talking about paywalls and piracy arg 
um, and, and fears that access to free content will negatively impact creators' ability to make such content, I figured let's start by talking about book libraries since they're one of the oldest examples of providing information for free. So based on kind of surveys and data collected from, you, from library users across the country, it would seem that libraries and loaned ebooks are actually a very powerful economic engine for the book business. Now, yes, libraries do have special deals to buy the books that they do have in stock. Sometimes they're donated, but even beyond that fact, like library users, like the fact that libraries exist for the users in and of themselves increase book sales. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty fun. So even as far back as like 2011, there's been studies that show that libraries do increase book sales. Now, yes, this is, this is, a, this is a, a capitalist argument, but sometimes when arguing with, let's, you know, let's call them normies, um, you can convince them to agree with a lot of kind of like anarchy leaning improvements to the world by carefully using their own rhetoric against them, right? This is, this is like the same thing with the giving out free drugs and having safe drug in, in like intake sites and giving you know, houses to homeless people, you know, all, all this type of stuff. You know, all of those things are cheaper for the taxpayer than what we're currently doing with how we use emergencies, yep. like uh, for how we use emergency services spending. So yes, it's a capitalist argument, but you can still kind of, you know, paint someone into a corner to, to <laughs> a, agree to like actual good improvements by using, hey, this is actually cheaper, you know, th that type of argument. So, yeah, libraries, they do increase book sales, so that is mostly cool. There, is a, there was a study that shows around, uh, this is a study around 20, 2011, that showed that 50% of library users report purchasing books by an author that they were introduced to through the library system, uh, which debunks the myth that when a library buys books, the publisher will lose future sales. Um, instead, it confirms that the public library does not only incubate and support literacy, as it's you know generally understood in our culture, but is also an active partner with the publishing industry in for building up the book market, and also including in that is the ever growing ebook market, which I don't really like ebooks for reasons we'll kind of discuss in a bit for how I kind of have an aversion to the idea of like digital ownership, but ebooks are undeniably a very a, a growing industry that also you know does does support writers in a lot of ways um but i think physical books are a lot cooler and more sure, reliable very nice they are as you can tell by my very nice physical book collection behind me which you cannot listen to because this is a podcast and you can't listen with your ears unless you're on a lot of drugs which good luck hearing the books behind me people yeah, who listen people to this podcast also have drugs. fun yeah you too but yeah i'm not i'm not talking about them um we're gonna, this is an anti-people who have undrug induced synesthesia podcast. Now, lucky bastards. We're gonna get canceled for that. <laughs> oh sure, Don't do yeah. That. That's what the, that's that's what's gonna get me. After all, yeah, not the. <laughs> well, bleep that! I can't believe you that, said yes. that. <laughs> wow. Whoa, Chris just said one of the just one of the most one of the most one of the most horrible authors that I would never be caught dead reading any of their books. Um. Anyway, uh. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea that like piracy and free information will like tank creative industries and you know the, the idea that you know just having access to free versions of media will hurt the ability to make more of the media is definitely proven wrong simply by the uh modern existence and popularity of anime uh in the United States because <laughs> uh we would not have anime anime would not be what it is today without piracy 
uh and uh because in the in the specifically like 2000s late 90s the piracy of anime became you know a big a massive reason why it is the cultural juggernaut that it is today over half of anime related sales revenue comes from overseas not not japan uh it comes from uh, places like the states yeah and, and, and you know and it's also i think worth mentioning here like it, it wasn't even just that they were like pirating the show, right? They were pirating. They they were getting a worse version of it. Oh yeah, because like uh, you, you know you're talking horrible about resolution. Like, yeah, terrible resolutions. Like I mean, literally like VCRs that people had figured out how to like write like get subtitles on. Like these versions of it are terrible. The translations are awful, and it's still just like absolutely like just catapulted anime from like an incredibly fringe thing for weirdos to a thing that is also still for weirdos, but is still now incredibly mostly. mainstream. Yeah, so yeah. I'm going to take, take, take this opportunity to plug our future episode, which is <sighs> dissecting the politics of Attack on Titan. Dun, dun, dun. It's coming, folks. Strap in. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, uh, would we'll, we'll not, we'll not be the thing it is today without, without, without privacy. And again, but... The majority of of sales revenue comes from not Japan, so yeah, yeah. that's that's uh, pretty 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 clear. So the, the the discovery of new books and authors through the library system um, is definitely surging right now. Actually, specifically due to ebooks and audiobooks being available uh, online anytime, well, like, like via library means. So there's like you know there's there's ways you can access. You can quote unquote borrow these types of things via via the library systems, uh, despite them being like digital media, uh, which again I, I prefer physical, but that's that's something we'll talk about later. So even e even while visits to libraries and like physical bookstores uh, plummeted during COVID nineteen, digital library usage soared, which is you know that that yep. that, that 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 tracks. Um, more than four hundred and thirty million titles were borrowed from the OverDrive wow. uh, library platform in 2020 alone and it would you know it, it you could you could assume that uh, this would cause a drop in the purchasing of books during the same period uh, but the opposite's true uh, actually the overall purchasing of books also rose in 2020 including an eight percent uh, lift in the sales of print books despite a lot of people being out of jobs and out of work you know that turns out people are bored so they're gonna spend money on books because books are cool and even when they have access to library stuff they still buy books. Yep, it's a it's a it's a simple truth that the the library patrons are usually also book buyers. This yeah, is... it's 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 me. I am literally me surrounded too. by books on all sides. They they have me surrounded. I have no escape. Uh, and this is what happens when you grow up in a library. I I mean I, I also grew up in a library. I mean I was yep. I was homeschooled. I grew up a lot of time in library. To my to, to to my left, I have books on urban exploration and Lemony Snicket. To my right, I have books on alchemy. Behind me, I have books which I shall not name. Um, <laughs> and behind me, I have a massive stack of comic books. Um, yeah, I am usually surrounded by books. It's uh, books are great, and you, yeah. you you have them unless they burn up. You're gonna have them no matter whether the internet goes out, whether whether an online provider shuts down. You're gonna you're gonna have physical books. They are they are they are pretty they're pretty cool. So, and libraries and like the library system offers a really great way to discover new books, new series, new genres, or new authors before deciding whether to permanently purchase those titles. So it's, it's this isn't just like an assumption used to hype up the idea of a library. It's, this has been proven by lots of studies, like the one I mentioned a few minutes ago from 2011. Um, also, there was the uh, Panorama Project's Immersive Media and Books 2020 
Consumer Survey, which is a way too long of a title. <laughs> it's a real mouthful. Which found that one third of responders bought a book that they discovered through the library in 2020. So turns out you, you discover a book, you return it, and you're like, hey, that book's actually pretty good. I'll just buy a copy myself. I did that. I, I, I still do that all the time. It's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a thing. So, this is why I own all my Star Wars books. For better yes. or for worse. This is why I have a, a beautiful copy of Splinter in the Mind's Eye. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> which I am very curious to see who will get that joke. Um, I, was, I, was, I, was try, I was trying to think of the worst Star Wars book that I have, and you said that, and I'm like, I can't. Courtship of Princess nothing. Leia. I think I actually have that. <laughs> uh, well, there you go. There's, there's two. There's, there's two for you. I give yeah. you two. Uh, yeah. So in our kind of in our like technology driven world of like, you know, wanting things very quickly, you know, instant instant gratification, um, library users are no different. Right? They, they, they still have that instant gratification drive. And many times they will want a specific book and they'll be happy to pay for it instead of waiting for it at the library. Right. You can put a book on hold and wait a month or you can buy it for 10 bucks. And oftentimes people will buy the book because we want things quickly. Uh, it's uh, according to the same panorama project. Immersive Media and Books 2020 Consumer Survey, uh, about 30% of respondents uh, said that they just bought books rather than waiting for them if they are unavailable for, from, from the library at the time. So, and it's, it's, it's a great system. I mean, like, libraries are also frequently used just as like a really good browsing tool. Um, you know, if you're unsure of what you want to read next, you can go to the library, look at stuff, and be like, okay, this is what I'm interested in, and then purchase it online or in person at a later date and it's not just uh, it's not 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 just physical books library users are also are also driving the purchase of ebooks and physical books um and audiobooks audiobooks have been actually very big at the library i used to listen to a lot of audiobooks actually from the library because i would get uh cds back when those were uh, a thing yeah uh great for road trips back in the old days when you had a cd I say with my Gen Z uh, <laughs> um, outlook, yes, uh, CDs, classic, classic. Uh, according to the Audio Publishers Association, also known as the APA, which is uh, an acronym, uh, <laughs> daily audiobook consumption has grown 71% since 2017, which is not surprising. I mean, like there's, there's, there's stuff like Audible and, you know, big, big platforms that are, that are making high quality audiobook content. Uh, but that's 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 a lot. Um, yeah. In in 2020 alone, audiobook revenue grew by 17 percent, wow. even though even though the number of people who were commuting plummeted. Right. Because a lot of people listen to audiobooks while like driving to work. So the number of, you know, of commuting dropped in 2020 because there was this plague. I'm not sure if you've heard about that. Uh, but well, they the still... government clearly hasn't. So, you know, <laughs> that's true. They're pretending it's not real. <laughs> but if yeah, if, 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 if you look at most. Uh, if you look at you know the uh, the audiobook revenue, it it grew despite there being uh, much less much less um, uh, much less work commuting, and that was the eighth straight year of double of double digit growth in the audiobook uh, revenue uh, sector, and it aligns with other kind of digital library usage statistics. So yeah, like libraries and booksellers will they 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 work in tandem. They it they libraries drive interest for content both physical and digital. You know, rising tide raises all, uh, all of those floaty things in the water, um, as the saying goes. Arg, that's a pi piracy joke, everybody. Arg, um, fiddly dee. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, Overdrive has found that when a, a reader uses one or more digital library apps, like uh, Libby, which I've never heard of until I had to re research this podcast, but once you, if you use more than one, one or more digital library apps, you're 60, you're, you are 61 percent more likely to increase your book consumption year over year versus people who do not. So yeah, it turns out when you read more books, you want to read more books because they're good. Because it's fun. <laughs> rules. It's fun. So <laughs> instead of instead of reading a book, I'm going to give our audio listeners an opportunity right now to listen to this carefully curated selection of ads, um, unless they're by like I don't know the. National Guard or whatever. So here you go. Here's here's some ads, and we are back. Wow, what a lovely lovely collection of audio treats to tickle your ears. Okay, okay. Your God. <laughs> <laughs> speaking speaking of tickling your ears, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. So a lot of a a lot of the reasons why we're gonna. So I, I'm this 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 will make sense. I, I promise. Um, we're about to talk about fly genetics. For gene no. SSH, Sonic Hedgehog. <laughs> no, for this is a real thing. Look it up. <laughs> we're we're talking about how like when people are allowed to like do piracy and allowed to do like their own things with media, it actually boosts the overall kind of like uh, presence of the franchise, right? So Sonic the Hedgehog would not be a current cultural stake if it wasn't for fan culture and the use of like fan games and fan media related to Sonic. So it's the same thing with like anime, right? Um, you know, Sonic so Sonic fan games, which were allowed to be existed for years, which Sega encouraged, are the only reason why there's good Sonic games right now, like Sonic Mania, which were just they just hired people who made fan games. Um, the person who redesigned Sonic the Hedgehog for the movie, what used to make Sonic fan comics, <laughs> and then got hired to make the actual official Sonic comics. Then they got hired to fix oh. the. Then got hired to fix the horrible movie design. <laughs> so yeah, Sega's been very good about like not being uh horrible about like copyright stuff and trademark stuff they've like really encouraged it because turns out when you when you yourself don't make good games you need to rely on fans <laughs> to yeah. actually make the good games so we get uh, we so we that's where you get beautiful creations like the sonic dreams collection which is a heartwarming uh nostalgic look at sonic through the ages um and uh other great games like sonic mania which so we can compare this to like a nintendo who unfortunately makes good games, um, but also hates when fans make games or do like emulation yeah. or any like ports. They will clamp down on that so fast. If you ever emulate a Nintendo game, you hell watch watch your back. <laughs> there will be there will be men in black suits following you around. Just yeah, like to to give an understanding of like how far this goes, right? So Super Smash Bros. Melee. This game is like maybe older than Garrison. It is. I don't, I think so. I actually don't know if that's true. It might, yeah, literally old and garrison, right? This game has an absolute, still, still to this day, like copies of this game are extremely expensive because there's an enormous professional scene around it. Uh, Nintendo, like, basically was working to actively smash them because they were they were playing yeah, a yeah yeah smash them yeah because they because they were playing on like an emulated uh like they're playing an emulated version of it for yeah. tournaments because it playing was easier a, a, emulated software yeah yeah and nintendo again who is literally getting like millions of views of completely free good publicity was like no we hate you yeah nintendo really does <laughs> not like it do this when people use their their like their their content and stuff in ways that are not 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 official and because they make decent games they could actually get get away with that um sega 
that's not like decent games, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so they have to rely on fans doing that. But yeah, like, that's the reason why Sonic is still a thing. It's because fans have like have been able to, you know, through through piracy, through emulation, through creating through using like Sonic code to code their own games. All that stuff is, is the reason why that's still like a cultural staple that is uh, releasing a new movie next month, which I'm very excited about. I'm very <laughs> excited about Sonic, Sonic the Hedgehog 2. It's going to be, it's going to be, I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking it could, we, we could finally clamp down on the video game Oscar this time. I feel it. Well, that's that. Look, this, 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 this is just because uh, Ace Attorney got robbed. Okay. Well, Greatest movie of all time. Ace so, Attorney. That is, that is my little uh, side bit about, about, uh, about, about Sega. Um, Oh yeah, I should also briefly mention that uh, Nintendo just like put literally put a guy in prison for helping ja- for helping jailbreak consoles. Like yeah. put put a man in prison for this for modifying people's software on a game console. I guess the other thing I'll talk about is like, I mean, part of the reason why I really don't like digital ownership of media is because you don't actually own the thing. You own mm-hmm. a license to use the content as long as the online service is active. So even if you buy a game on you know, the Nintendo Switch store, you're not actually buying the game, you're buying a license to use the game. But same thing for whether you're buying media on like Amazon Prime, right? It's 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 the same thing. If if you're if you're buying a digital copy of it, it's a license to use it. So you can take you know, what Nintendo has done uh, a few years ago is they shut down the Wii Shop channel, which means if you bought a game and it wasn't currently downloaded, you can now you just it's gone. You just cannot you cannot play it anymore because they just completely took the service down. So you don't actually you're not you're not actually buying the thing you're just buying a license to use the thing now they did they did the same thing a few months ago for the wii u shop channel and the 3ds channel so yeah rip rip to that uh if you if you if you have if you bought games on there that were not currently running then you cannot get them anymore they're just gone like you can they're just lost lost to time well and, and you know and again if 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 you modify the software on the game console that you like nominally own in order to play the games that you bought and paid for they will throw you in prison nintendo will send men in suits to come and get you and throw you in the prison yahoo Yee-hee. that's a it's a mario it's a mario joke everybody um yes so I mean, I, it's the same thing with like subscription services. Like, obviously, if you have a subscription service, you don't own the content you're watching. You are just getting permission to use it from a certain amount of time. So this is obviously this is this is more obvious, right? You you don't own what's on Netflix. You just are able to watch what Netflix has legal rights to show. But you even see this thing extended to like cars. Like Toyota was was trying out a program, and this may even it may even still be active for some cars where. You need a subscription service to use the key fob on your car's like automatic like like door locking like fob. Like you need a subscription to use that service of it, which is like wh- why? Like it, you, it's it's just turning yeah. everything. It's turning everything into a subscription to a like a subscription service. It's horrible. Like everything is becoming a new subscription service, a new a new thing to get your monthly payments for. It's 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 awful. Like you don't actually buy things anymore. It's just subscription services and digital copies it's not nothing is nothing is actually the thing anymore yeah it's it's it's, it's all just rent extraction the the entire economy instead of you know having a thing they figured out wait what if we just extract rent and then you also don't own it same thing with like tesla cars you have to like buy buy you know upgrades via software that are already built in and like subscribe to keep your car running nicely like what it's not like no. Yeah, I, you know, like, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go on on a very small gamer rant here. 
Yeah, because this this is a, this is a thing. A lot a lot of the worst practices for this originated in gaming, and this this was a this was a big fight back in like the early 2010s about okay, if you buy a game, right? Do you own everything on the game? And there was a huge fight about you know they have these like uh, delayed uh, DLC, like they have these new content packages that would be on the disc, right? That you've bought, but you can't access it unless you pay the money. And this was like a fight, and some gamers were like, eh. You know, and some gamers tried to fight it, right? But most gamers didn't care, and then yep. they became the weaponized shock troops of the far right instead of you know dealing with this shit. And now, literally everything has fucking day day one DLC on it. That you buy the thing, you don't even get all you the have stuff. To, you have to buy the if you have to buy the season pass to get all yeah. the content in the future. Yeah, yeah it's like it's, you have to buy the season pass for your car to work properly. Yeah, like, so this, it, is, this is just how capitalism. It, it started with it, start, it started with the season pass for a sixty for a sixty dollar game. To then buy season pass to get more of the game, and now it's for your fifty thousand dollar car. Uh, so, yay! That's fun. It's it's not. It's it's kind of sucks. No, so it's, it's awful. But yeah, a lot of these a lot of these like play to win practices, these like free models, which then like uh, the, which lead into like a subscription service based model, um, have have definitely started in online gaming, and it's yeah, it's it's really frustrating because. As we'll talk about here in a bit, like the Sega model is like better. Like, turns out when you encourage your fans to play around with the stuff, it only helps your property. Like, that's the reason why they there's still Sonic merch available now, and it's not like a dead franchise. It's because they let because they allowed that to happen. So it's actually really cool when we're allowed to access free information and play with it how we want to, instead of like having this weird strict copyright like rules for not allowing certain usage of certain things like it's 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 not it's not great when you're restricting like emulation restricting fan games restricting the access to information it's not it's not it's it's not it's not fun but yeah this is kind of it kind of plays into why i i am very skeptical of digital media which is why i start started collecting blu-rays of all the, of all the things i like because i've bought things on amazon prime which are now no longer available on amazon prime and that sucks so like why do that Instead, just buy your physical copy. Yeah, well, and the thing is, like, it didn't, and it's all true to some extent, like, if, if you buy physical copies, like, it didn't used to be like this. Like, Blu-rays used to, to some extent, still do, but it's, they still I don't know do how most, yeah, mostly. sometimes. Yeah, but, like, like if, if you buy the physical copy of it, they will give you a code that lets you use the online version. Of a it. digital download code, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, that's a much better way of the thing working than... Uh, instead of you, you know, you don't buying it, you don't have the physical product, and also they can take it away from you. Yeah, it's. I'll circle back to this idea towards the end, but I kind of want to. I want now want a little bit segue to like the idea of the same type of like paywalling subscription service issues and like the restriction of free information regarding like online news. So you know, there's a lot of people, whether they be like reporters, editors, authors, or just annoying people online. Um, but there's a decent collection of people that perpetuate the notion that readers or consumers are actually responsible for the dire straits of the media industry. But the problem with journalism and many other media, you know, industries, it, but the, the problem isn't that people aren't paying for news. The problem is, is that newspapers and outlets are being decimated and dismantled by hedge funds, capital investment firms, venture capitalists, and tech companies in search of profit. Um, you can look at how Facebook tricked a whole bunch of companies into switching over to uh, video content and then a whole bunch of companies <laughs> had to fire tons of people because it was a lie. You can look at how Sinclair Broadcasting dominates local news channels and websites 
um, and how well-established local papers are struggling while big companies buy up all the competition. So it's, 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 it's especially the venture capitalist thing is actually a really, uh, is a really interesting idea that has been documented decently well. In, in, in a bit, I'll teach you how to bypass uh, newspaper headlines via different methods. Uh, but there's this actually good article in the Washington Post um, that is titled, uh, As a Secretive Hedge Fund Guts Its Newspapers, Journalists Are Fighting Back. It kind of just details all of the different hedge funds and venture capitalist firms that have like just totally destroyed so many local papers throughout the entire country. It's actually kind of surprising once you learn how many of these papers are just getting destroyed by like just a few like a, just like a few hedge funds are just doing all this damage and it's it's like yeah i mean this is why the current like journalism industry kind of sucks right now is because of these types of practices and i mean like no one likes it like no one's happy with it like yeah. ev everyone hates journalism journalists hate journalism people who read journalism hates journalism like activists hate journalism like everyone's mad at it um and yeah you could look at these these hedge funds and venture capitalists who are just like making it such an impossible industry uh and then you know how you have like you have internet sites and culture sites like vice buzzfeed and cracked who've had to frequently lay off large swaths of their editorial and writing teams whether for like union reasons or because the company made failed attempts to chase some big tech companies or media giants you know like pr pr proposed money like in the facebook switching over to video content kind of debacle that happened a few years ago. And like, it's, 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 it's understandable why these writers, artists, and journalists are frustrated because yeah, the work is hard and the salaries are low. Well, the work should be hard. Some people kind of slack off, but you know, for the good journalism is more, is, is, is challenging and salaries typically aren't great. But even if audience monetary support were the solution to making creative and writing industries more profitable again, the kind of anti-piracy folks would still be missing a fundamental point is that kind of the the pro paywall people want you to get it through your head that journalism is just like other types of things you buy, whether it be food, you know, alcohol or entertainment um, saying, you know, all these things, you know, Netflix isn't free, you know, Coca-Cola isn't free, right? This isn't journalism's fault. It's just how the world works. You have to buy it to use it. It you know it costs money to make, so you have to buy it to use it. It's just it's 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 like it's dumb to think otherwise. This is kind of their framework. But I beg to differ because enjoying art and worthwhile journalism, I think, should always have the option of being free. Because when information is in the public interest, it should just always be available to everybody, uh, whether or not you've already used up your three free articles. Like this is really important, especially now when there's you know the whole the whole war thing happening and finding like paywalled articles about it is incredibly frustrating uh and yeah i mean there was even when the there was a right wing a right wing extremist who opened fire and killed someone at a portland uh uh black lives matter protest a few weeks ago uh that that is you know still definitely impacting the city uh cuz it was it's it's still very recent but a lot of the news coverage first of all wasn't great uh, there was a, a whole bunch of news yeah. coverage was like was uh, parroting the police lies and framing the framing the attacker as like an innocent homeowner who was defending himself. It was pretty gross. But even we, even when the news articles started to like correct their previous grievous errors, um, almost all of it was paywalled. Like all like all of, like a whole bunch of stuff was paywalled about it, and that's incredibly frustrating. Because uh, this is like you know when information's in the public interest, 
it should be free to access. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like that's just this like a good moral thing. Like uh, and even um, and we've seen it. We've seen this before. Back in 2020, when the plague was uh, a new thing, news organizations across the country started to lift paywalls to share coverage of the coronavirus pandemic, um, which was great. And you know, you can you can obviously see that once that changed over, a lot of people who were making this happen behind the scenes probably hoped that it would just convince people to become paying customers. But it was still like that's still the way things should be is to have have the option of it being free and then having the option to donate. And this actually seems to be kind of the trend. Uh, in, in 2018, the University of uh, of Texas at Austin surveyed about like a thousand uh, Chicago residents about their local news consumption. And they found that respondents were more willing to give a $10 donation to support a free news site than pay $10 for a subscription to access premium news content. So, yeah, like that's and that I definitely share that same like uh, that same idea. I will way sooner donate money to a newspaper that I enjoy that is also free than I will pay $10 a month to read subscription service based news. It's uh. It's because it turns out when you like this, this applies to all types of media, but like when you enjoy media, you want to support its creators, whether that be anime, whether that be Sonic the fucking hedgehog, whether yeah. that be whether that be news or books. Right. If you like something, you're going to buy it. Right. I, I got introduced to Lemony Snicket's books via the library. And now I bought lots because I wanted to uh, I wanted to buy the books from the person that I like. Yeah. And. and- there are entire like industries that, in, that literally just work on this principle. This is why free to play games work. Yeah, exactly. There, there, there's another conversation with free to play games here about like addiction and gambling and manipulation about that. But like that, that's you know like set, setting that aside for a second. It's like yeah, these things. If 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 people didn't want if didn't spend money on things they like, free to play games would not work. Like fundamentally as a model. Yeah, no, def- definitely the idea of like, yeah, you get someone starts enjoying the service, so then they start paying for it, whether it be buying a useless, you know, skin for whatever third person shooter you have, or that be, you know, buying books or copies of, of, of the film or like anime body pillows, whatever. Like you you, you <laughs> want to financially support the things that you enjoy. This is just a part of this is what humans do. So, yeah, maybe more stuff should be have the option of being free. Uh, that is definitely my take on it. Let's let's have a quick let's have a bit of an ad. Speaking of uh, free content, this uh, podcast is brought to you by these lovely sponsors, so you can listen for free while just skipping the ads. So good for you. We're back, and now we're going to talk about different ways of bypassing uh, paywalls, specifically for online news, because paywalls frustrate me. And as someone who likes messing around with kind of computery stuff, there's definitely a long list of ways to bypass paywalls, depending on what types of paywalls. We are talking about so types of paywalls. There are there are t- typically two general types of paywalls. There's hard paywalls and soft paywalls. Um, hard paywalls require payment upfront, so usually some some form of subscription fee before accessing any content. Uh, websites with hard paywalls will maybe will let you lead like a tiny snippet of the article, but you need access. You, you, you need you need to pay subscription to access the full the full content. Soft paywalls are 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 they typically allow you to read a number of articles before you need to buy buy a subscription. So it's there's you have a, a set number of like articles that you can read for a fixed period or session. Um, 
There's, you know, a lot of a lot of a lot of websites operate like this. Most of like New York Times operates like this. A lot of a, a lot a lot of news sites have a soft paywall model, which is great because they're typically a little bit easier to bypass. Uh, first first method. This works some of the time. It depends on how the website's constructed, but you can c try to stop the loading page before it fully loads. Uh, it's a, generally a quick technique. It's effective on several different types of web pages. Uh, you have to stop your browser from fully loading the web page as soon as your browser displays the text element of the paywalled content. So you, you know, enter a page URL into the search bar, press enter, and then press the X icon or the escape key as soon as you see some of the text on screen before a paywall uh, window pops up. Um, a major limitation of this is that stopping the website may not load all content elements, so it may only render like a portion of the text, or it may like miss out on like files, like images, animations, or videos. Um, and it also depends on the order of which the website loads the page elements. So, for example, if a website loads the paywall first, then this trick won't be successful. Also, you have to be kind of pretty fast in order to make this one work. Typically, this isn't the first way I do it because there's generally easier ways. But if you can do this, then cool. It's definitely it's definitely a fast one if you can get it to succeed. For soft paywall, so like I, I I will say the 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 stopping the browser from loading is actually successful at some hard paywall sites, uh, because if they do like load a portion of the text to read as like a snippet, sometimes it'll actually load the entire text, but then just block it off with a separate window. So sometimes with a hard paywall, you can actually stop it via this method. So that's always fun. Um, but second method generally more for soft paywalls. Is for is is to delete your page's cookies. So you know websites store cookies to track your browser um, activities, including how much content you've accessed. So uh, blog publishers, newspaper, newspaper sites can track the number of free articles you've read using the cookies stored on your browser. If you've hit the limit for uh, for non-subscribers, if like the, the the limit of articles allotted, then you can delete the website cookies to refresh the to refresh that counter and it will possibly reset the limit of articles. Um, you can go to the privacy or security section of your web browser, select the option that allows you to check the cookies and cite for all data, and then search for the website that you're looking for in the in the cookie management page, and then click remove all. You can do this on like Firefox, Chrome, Microsoft Edge, if you want to use that for some reason. Um, <laughs> Safari, uh, yeah. But uh, this trick may not work very well on hard paywalls, because it that's that they don't really use cookies for the same purpose and also you'll have to you know do if you're doing if you're doing this for soft paywalls you have to do it every time you you reach the limit um and if this won't work if the website is using other kind of more advanced tools to track your activity like uh, ip logs right so if it's tracking your ip data instead of your cookies then this probably won't work so this one's uh, this one. I mean, you you should clear cookies every once in a while anyway. Just like gen generally a good practice, but to do this all the time is kind of a, kind of a bit of work. Uh, especially because the next method is typically easier and does the same thing, which is just reading articles inside a private or incognito mode or in the Tor browser. Um, so as 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 explained earlier, not all paywalls are about the same. If you know if a website uses a soft paywall you sh should be able to read a uh, subscription based content through incognito or, or private browsing because it'll check the uh, it'll it'll trick the website into thinking you're a brand new visitor granting you access to the content before it had before it racks up enough views to uh to throw up at the paywall window so this is uh, this is a lot easier than just manually deleting the cookies yep. every single time <laughs>
because yeah, most web browsers do not transmit pre-existing cookies onto an incognito or private mode uh, browser mode. So it doesn't switch those back over. And then although the website will deposit new cookies onto your browser during private browsing sessions, they will be removed as soon as you close the window. Uh, one bummer is that some news pages are getting wise and actually are programming their websites to be, able, to be able to detect if they're opened in a private or browsing mode or even on tour. Um, and they just like won't open. They'll, they'll say, sorry, you have to, we, we've detected that you're using this in private browsing mode to view this content boot up a regular browser which so, which really sucks for the tour users because a lot of people who yeah. are using tour are like hey yeah Need like it? i'm in china i'm trying to get past yep. the great firewall and uh fuck you eat shit you should have uh somehow paid a subscription service to us yep. to, to see information on this site that uh is literally illegal here like it's yeah, great it's, it's really bad for people who are like actually facing government censorship yeah. um who need to use tour to to view content so yeah that that is a uh, it's what we call a major bummer. Uh, a major sucks. A major oh no, capitalism did a whoopsie. Yep. Um, yeah, but yeah, this is definitely this is one of the modes I do most often. It's like I can typically get a, get a lot of sites to be able to view through incognito or private or private browsing. But again, it does depend on what the site is is uh is is built to do. But by far, my favorite method, oh, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll mention another one that I don't really use very often, is the uh, paywall removal extensions for, for your browser, which is like third-party browser extensions, which uh, try to automatically bypass paywalls. These are really hit and miss, um, and it's, they're also a really great way to get nice, uh, fancy malware onto your computer. Um, so I, would, I typically steer clear of this, but there, there is allegedly... A browser extension called uh, Bypass Paywalls for Chrome and Firefox that allegedly has been found to be effective um, that allows you to read subscription-based articles on hundreds of publications like New York Times, Wired, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Um, it, is, it, is, it is free, but you have to manually load it onto your browser. And just typically, I'm not a big fan of browser extensions in the first place, so I kind of steer clear of these. But some, 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 people, some people swear by them, so... Maybe maybe they can work. They're not they're, they're not really my thing. Uh, but my favorite method is uh, archive websites, uh, specifically archive.is. So there are internet archiving tools that preserve copies of web pages and social media posts for reference purposes, uh, and you can use these tools to access paywalled content and read subscription-based news articles for free, including a lot of hard paywalled uh, pages. Uh, archive.is or archive.is is my favorite one. Um, also it's, it functions under archive.today. Uh, just, it just, it depends on what servers they're running at the moment. Of course, there's also the classic and pretty reliable archive.org, uh, which has a nice, uh, calendar feature, but it's definitely good to check both of these because sometimes an article will be archived on archive.is really easily and it won't be available on archive.org. Sometimes it'll be on archive.org and not archive.is. It's, it's currently, the, the one that's currently live, I think is .ph. It automatically switches usually. I, I usually just type in archive.is um, and it switches me over automatically. But yes, there is, there is, there is, there is a few of them. Yeah, yeah, you are right. Correct. It does automatically revert to archive.ph right at the moment. So yeah, but these, these are the ones I use the most because people who have access to hard paywalled content will often archive the hard paywalled stuff so it's available to people without the paywall. This 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 can include the screenshot mode for archive.is and the regular archival method for archive.org. 
but both these are great. Um, and they're also really good for looking at past versions of the articles. Yeah. So you can look to see what how the articles have changed over time. <laughs> yep. and, and so these are great just research tools. And archive.is is very easy to even upload stuff yourself, even if you don't have um, the paywall. It's like even, even if you're blocked off from reading the full thing, you can try to submit it to archive.is. And there's a good chance I might actually grab an unpaywalled version of it because uh, because of how because of how the site works. So just go to archive.ph or 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 archive.is, enter the web page URL that you're wanting to access in the designated uh, dialog box at the bottom. Select save. It'll go through a little process, um, and then it, then you will uh, then you'll be able to select the screenshot mode or the web page mode and be able to see what type of thing it archives. It's pretty it's pretty cool. Um, it's the last thing I'll mention is outline.com and 12 foot ladder. These are web-based tools, but not specifically archival sites. They're generally used to just get to the text of an article via like web page nonsense and bypassing paywall stuff. Unfortunately, websites have also gotten wise to this. So stuff like New York times and wall street journal have figured out a way to get these sites blocked. So you cannot use outline.com or 12 foot ladder on them. But they still work on stuff like the Washington Post, so it always depends. Uh, but I definitely generally will prefer the archive.is and archive.org method to viewing any kind of paywalled content. Um, yeah. And that's kind of my, I mean, I'm not, now I'm, I'm not going to explain how to do like regular piracy on the podcast because I don't have enough time. But like, yeah, it's easy. Yeah, there are, there are lots of people who will tell you. I mean, like Kiss Cartoon is like a very yeah. popular website. <laughs> like, you don't even need to like, you don't even have to like properly like torrent stuff anymore. There is like so much pirated media available. Yeah, and, and it's like okay, so like you, you got to be a little bit careful when you're pirating stuff because sometimes you can get copyright strikes. But if you stream it, it, it they they don't copyright yeah. strike you for that. So yeah, yeah. Be I guess the, the other thing I will plug is uh, Plex, which is a kind of an online movie hosting service like Netflix, except you upload all of the content to it. So let's say you buy Blu-rays. They comes with, it comes with a digital download code. So now you can upload the digital copy into Plex and watch that wherever you want as long as you're signed into the, to the Plex account and you actually own the stuff on the service. So as long as the service is online, you can use it because you actually own the stuff on it. Um, that includes if you have if you have pirated versions of movies downloaded, you can upload those versions onto Plex, then, then delete the actual hard copies of it on your hard drive, then just watch the ones on Plex and you're totally fine. So Plex is great for having like ease of access because right sometimes I don't want to sort through my Blu-ray discs and make sure that I have a Blu-ray player with me so to watch my stuff. So using Plex is a great web method to keep your stuff that you actually own accessible online to watch it as long as you sign into a web browser. Um, and the last thing I'll plug is library submission forms. So. If you really want media and you don't want to pay for it and you don't want to like pirate it necessarily, you can get libraries to buy stuff. Um, I did this all the time when I was younger. I, I found out that you could submit uh, uh, items for purchase via, via, via the library on the online forum. And uh, 
I submitted so many comic books. Uh, most of the comic books, I would say, not most, but like a good majority of the comic books in the Mount Lemmon County Library System are because of me. Every <laughs> every Wednesday when a new trade paperback would be released, I would upload it to the library submission form and they would buy it. Uh, and not just one copy, they would buy like 12 copies. Yeah. So, I, there's so many Batman comics in the <laughs> in the in the Baltimore County system because I would studiously uh, upload upload all that stuff so that I didn't need to pay for comics. I could just get them from the from the library. So definitely look into library submissions to kind of grow what your library has in stock, and then also look into see what other things your library is doing because I know more libraries are looking into building like maker spaces and like tool libraries to um. Uh, have access to things that are not just like books, you know, to have power tools, and then you know how to access to even cool stuff like stuff like uh, vacuum formers and, th- and like three D printers, laser cutters. Yeah. All these things are are kind of growing. So look into what your library is doing because oftentimes libraries have some pretty cool stuff. Um, so yeah, this is my little little bit on why I don't like paywalls. Uh, why I think content should be free because it actually helps creators in the long run any, anyway. And how to get past uh, news articles that don't want you to read them without paying too much money. Yep. And remember, folks, if Japan invaded your country, pirating anime is reparations. If you're mad about this tweet, uh, find me on Twitter at IWriteOK. Yeah, make sure you tweet at IWriteOK if you have complaints yep. about that take. So yeah, that is, uh, that is my, little, my, my, my little bit talking about piracy. Arg, And, uh, and yeah, I mean, more... St- we should, we should, we should, I, th- I think it's, I've, I've always had, I've always told this opinion that I think we can all learn a lot of lessons from Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, and I think one of the greatest ones is that turns out when you make stuff available to use uh, for free and allow emulation, people like, people like, people like the stuff more. People enjoy it and it will actually support official uses of it as well. So more stuff for free, more, more, more library based economies. And, and less... having having gold rings, having an enormous number of gold rings makes you nearly invincible. That's that is this is all, this is also true. I mean, this multiple franchises exist with that exact premise. Yep. Um, yeah. So turns out, uh, when you have more more libraries, more rings, people people are happier. Yep. That's the episode. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com sources. Thanks for listening. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, 
You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. 